is willing to give an individual patient 45 minutes of treatment a day. It just doesn't happen. It may be, or if it does happen, it's extremely expensive. Usually the Raqi will give one treatment a week of about an hour, maybe two treatments a week. Sometimes I've found them do three treatments a week. But that three treatments a week is 50% of the minimum standard needed. So where are we going to bring the other 50% from? Bearing in mind that for many people that Raqi will be charging large amounts of money. It's not uncommon in the UK for a Raqi to charge a thousand dirhams a session. I've seen this before. Now I wouldn't recommend you go to a Raqi for a thousand dirhams a session. I wouldn't recommend you go to a Raqi for a hundred dirhams a session. But there are, it is very common to see a Raqi charging upwards of 500 to 1,000 dirhams a session. That means for you to get the ruqya, the basic minimum standard that you need to get better, inshallah, within a reasonable frame of time, you are looking in the region of 3,000 dirhams a week. And that is not doable for the overwhelming majority of people. Some may say, well, what about the free ruqya centers? Alhamdulillah, amazing. But because they're free, they will not be able to give you even near that amount of time. You might get one session every two weeks, one session a month. Now you're going down to 10%, 5% of what a person needs to get better within a reasonable frame of time. There isn't another solution to this except for helping people to do ruqya upon themselves. And there are other virtues in helping people to do ruqya upon themselves, which we will come to over the time. From the greatest of them is the virtue of building your relationship with Allah. Because as I have said in the past, I don't believe that ruqya is anything limit or is limited in any way to just reciting Quran for people so they get better. I don't think that is of any or of anywhere near uh, the benefit that they can be taken out of Rukia. At the end of the day, Rukia is about purifying the heart. Shifa'un lima sudur, a cure for that which is in the chest, that which is in the heart. About purifying your belief, about raising your iman, about attaching yourself to the Quran, attaching yourself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, showing your desperate need of Allah. All of those things can be taken from Rukia. Purifying yourself, purifying your soul, seeing the signs of Allah and taking a lesson from them, raising your iman through seeing these huge signs and miracles happen in front of your, in front of your own eyes. There are huge benefits in that. And really those benefits don't come when you go to a person and say, do ruqya for me. And perhaps this is why, or one of the reasons why the Prophet ﷺ mentioned 70,000 people who will enter Jannah without any account and any punishment being taken for them. May Allah make you and I from them. And then when, they, when the companions began to ask, who are these people? Perhaps they are the companions of the Prophet Perhaps this is Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali. Who else can it be? Maybe it is these people. Maybe the early people who became... Muslim, and they mentioned many different groups of people. Then the Prophet ﷺ came out and he said, Humul ladina la yastarqoon. 
ولا يتطيرون ولا يكتبون وعلى ربهم يتوكلون أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم He said they are the people who do not seek ruqya nor do they believe in omens nor do they perform cautery or have cautery or cauterization done and upon their Lord they trust the scholars of Islam said this hadith is not intended to be al-hasr to be a comprehensive list of those people i.e. that if you don't seek ruqya you are from the 70,000 this hadith is a description of a part of their characteristics and the meaning is they are those people who have such a high level of voluntary iman that they have reached such a level that they trust upon Allah completely even to the extent that they do not ask a person for ruqya even to the extent that they trust completely in Allah Azza wa Jal and they don't get into the habit of asking people for things as for asking for ruqya asking for ruqya may be wajib and fard upon you when is asking for ruqya fard asking for ruqya fard is fard when not having ruqya done is preventing you from a wajib or causing you to do a haram so if for example the affliction a person is suffering from is stopping them from praying or stopping them from fasting or causing them to do haram and they don't aren't able to deal with that themselves then it is fard upon them to seek ruqya not recommended it is fard why because of the principle ma la yatimul wajib illa bihi fahuwa wajib if there is something that you can't achieve an obligation with except by doing it then that thing itself is an obligation you can't pray without wudu therefore wudu is an obligation exactly as the prayer is an obligation if you can't live your life as a muslim without asking someone to do ruqya for you then it is wajib for you to ask for it but for those who wish to achieve the highest levels of paradise and those who wish to or are striving to complete their iman in as many ways as possible part of that and not only one thing but a part of that is reducing your need of the people and increasing your need in Allah and reducing your reliance on people and increasing your reliance on Allah and as part of that going around to people with your hand out and saying well I will not be able to be cured if you don't read upon me what kind of iman does that leave Maybe it doesn't take away the obligatory iman, but certainly it takes away from the, the higher levels of iman for you to be saying that I can't, I, I don't know, I, could, you know I, I don't have the level to trust in Allah that Allah will bring this cure for me and I will take care of it myself. Please read upon me. Then this is no doubt going to reduce at least the voluntary recommended level of iman in some way or another. That doesn't mean, again, that if you refrain from asking for ruqya, you have done everything you need to be from the 70,000. There are many, many other aspects, many other things in terms of raising the level of iman to a level that is beyond the obligatory level and a level where your trust in Allah is as absolute as a person can do, knowing the mistakes that we all have.
There is no doubt that self-ruqya is better for you in this regard. And at the end of the day, what should be our first method? Shouldn't we try ourselves first before then we need to go with our hands outstretched? Maybe we do need to go with our hands outstretched. You know, at the end of the day, it's like asking for someone to help you with debt. What do you think is best? The person tries first or the person goes? In your iman and in your deen that you try to repay that debt yourself first. And if you're unable and you've tried and you can't bear it anymore, then you go and ask somebody to help. Rukia is no different. Rukia is no different at all. The same principle applies. Before you go asking for a raqi, read on me, help me, tell me, support me. Before that, try yourself. More important than that, self-ruqya is a sunnah of the Prophet The Prophet did ruqya upon himself. And he did ruqya upon his family. And his family did ruqya upon him. Asking for it, and as in, he would, if he was sick, without the Allah Anha, would recite over him. She would recite the Mu'awwidatayn. She would recite Al Falaqan and Nas over the Prophet when he was sick. When Aisha was sick, anha, without her asking the Prophet to do so, he would recite over her with Al Falaqan and Nas. So this is a sunnah. And subhanallah, when you see the state of Rukia today, you would believe that the sunnah is to go to a Raqi and tell the Raqi to read over you. But the sunnah that was established from the Prophet ﷺ is self-Rukia. And there's no harm in going to a Raqi. And some of the Sahaba used to be known for their Rukia and they used to do Rukia on other people. And the Prophet ﷺ said, whichever of you or whoever of you is able to help his brother, let him do so. Or as he said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So there is, there is an allowance in the sunnah for this and an allowance in the sunnah for that. But don't be fooled into thinking that the standard method of the sunnah is that you go to the raqi and ask the raqi for help. The recommendation and that which is no doubt better for you in every single aspect is that you recite upon yourself, you recite upon family members, uh, as the Prophet ﷺ used to do, as Aisha ﷺ used to do. And then if any of you finds within themselves uh, a desire to go further than that, then whoever of you is able to help his brother or his sister in Islam, then let him do so. So hopefully that has sort of set the tone for this topic of practical self-treatment. Now, uh, I also wanted to continue on what we said in the email. We said that we will be talking about specific and detailed case studies, inshallah. We will be putting an emphasis on self-treatment and treatment within the family. We'll be talking about, inshallah, common obstacles and how to overcome them. Elements of treatment which are often forgotten or ignored. Further training for those who are dealing with cases and questions and case studies from you guys. I want to leave some time for questions and case studies from you guys. I don't want you, if at all possible, to talk to me when we finish the class. I don't mind, but 
I don't want it to be like a long queue of people who want to talk about Rukia cases after we finish the class. We've all come here today to talk about Rukia. If you have a case you want to ask about, put it down, make it anonymous, no problem. You know, it's not an issue, make it, you know, take your name away or take your family details away, just make it general. But ask the question so everyone can benefit. Because my experience will be, like I said, 70% of people get the same answer, there or thereabouts, and Allah knows best. Around 70% of people get the same answer. So if you're sending these questions forward, we can summarize them and say, the answer to question one, two, three, four, five, six is this. And the answer to question seven is this. And that way everyone can learn. Much better than if one person comes and says, you know, I've come to you because my brother has a rukia problem, my sister, my daughter, my father, and so on and so forth. So we want to try and get you to share uh, your case studies with the audience. Uh, I don't think there's any harm in that. You can anonymize whatever you want to, you know, keep anonymous. But at the end of the day, we all came here to learn it. So we should be willing to share that with each other. And we're also going to give you some previously unseen material. And this is really important for me. And that's why I have this section on a prerequisite for attending. And I, I sent you guys all a text message as well to remind you that I will not be going over the old Rukia material generally today. I think most of you will have seen my Rukia videos, or at least some of them. Most of you will have seen Abu Ibrahim's uh, Rukia videos, Allah Father or the, the, the DVD that he did with Kalima, this is available, it's on sale outside, I believe there are copies of the DVD outside, which is the one that Abu Ibrahim did. Many of you will have attended that course. Likewise, uh, you will have, some of you will have visited the website and read some of the material on there. At the end of the day, what I found myself doing is that over the last three years, I've pretty much just repeated the same material everywhere I go. Near or there or thereabouts, added a, you know, a topic, taken a topic away. But generally, I've been repeating the same kind of material. And I think that if we keep doing that, we're not really going to get any further forward. You know, you'll come here, who are the jinn, what is magic, how do we treat it, what's the basic rukia, so on and so forth. And then we'll all go home. Then we come for the next one in three months' time or four months' time. What are the jinn, what is magic? We're not going to get anywhere. So what I said this time is I, I said to the guys at Kalima, this time I want to do things a little bit differently. I want to presume that all of you have already at least covered the basic topic that Abu Ibrahim gave in, or the basic talk that Abu Ibrahim gave and ideally some of the Rukia videos that I've done before and some of the notes. If you haven't, then no harm inshallah, you can pick up a copy of the DVD you can uh, go to my website and I'll show you my website in a second. I know the projector is not uh, really clear, but uh, I will bring, I'll show you the website inshallah as well and talk you through that in a little while. Uh, and uh, you can sort of get notes from there, you can get the videos from there. And by that inshallah, we won't have to repeat the same material over and over again. So I'm not really gonna talk about who the jinn are, I'm not gonna talk about what magic is, uh, I'm not gonna talk about the basic symptoms, we're going to try and get right into the topic of practical self-treatment. Uh, so, that being said, uh, I wonder if we can... Brilliant. Okay. That being said, inshallah, I will briefly show you and take you through the website. 
it is not the most impressive website you will have ever seen. Uh, I really don't have time, will I? Uh, but it is there because basically I'm trying my best to post as much material on Rukia specifically as possible so that lots of people can benefit from it instead of just giving one personal answers by email. So my new system is when someone emails me a Rukia question, if there are lots of questions with the same kind of answer, or if I think the answer will be beneficial for lots of people, then what I do is I write a blog post or an article, and I will send the person the link to the article instead of the answer by email. And that's because at the end of the day, if you imagine roughly I get any, around 200 emails a month on the topic of Rukia, if you imagine answering each one of those individually, it's going to take a very, very, very long time. Uh, and it does take a very long time. So what I started to do instead is collate the answers together every couple of weeks, put out a couple of blog posts that answer the questions, and then email people with the links. So if you've emailed me recently, you're much more likely to have received a link to a blog post than you are to have received uh, an answer to the question. And that's to try and reach a larger audience. Of course, when I answer on the blog post, I don't use anyone's personal information. Uh, there's nothing on there that you know sort of can identify anyone, but the answer is inshallah there. And also, it helps me to improve the answer. I'm always changing them, adding things. Uh, you know, inshallah, we're going to add Arabic onto the website. We're going to add sort of you know various different things, inshallah, to make it more usable. And at some point, I will I will get the design sorted out as well. But for now, it's just basic bootstrap. You know, that's all it is. But you go to the website, and along the top, you have uh, some. Uh, links, you have a link to contact me. Now some people might find it quite difficult to find the email on there, that is done very deliberately to make people, force people to actually read the conditions for emailing before they actually email. Uh, I do have conditions for emailing, as you can imagine, I get a lot of people and I don't want to stop. I really, really don't want to stop and say to people, no emails, no appointments, you know, I'm just going to come for my lectures and go. But you can imagine when a lot of people, hundreds every month, start emailing you, it becomes very hard. So the best way I can do is to try to force people, reduce the amount of information. As I've told you before, I sometimes get, you know, like three A4 pages of a person's Rukia history. And at the bottom it says, my question is, can I use honey in my Rukia treatment? And that's after three A4 pages of when I was 13, I had a dream. When I was 13 and a half, I had another dream. When I was 14, I fell down the stairs. When I was 14 and a half, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. At the end, the question is, do you think I should use honey in my Rukia treatment? And, he, I'm, and well, I don't blame the person because, of course, you want to tell everything that might be relevant. I, I'm not blaming the person at all. But that is not doable, it's not practical. We're talking about practical self-treatment, it's not practical to answer. So try to keep the questions very short, make sure you've read the website first, because my number one sort of pet hate are people who ask, for example, do you do Rukia? Or have you got a video on Rukia? Khwani, the website is there, read the website first. If you don't find the answer on the website, I'll be more than happy to answer, inshallah, as long as the, the question is short. And you try to keep it like a question paper in a conference. And you don't write like, unless someone's taken an A4 paper, started writing from now. Generally, you write like small, small questions, inshallah, as much as possible. And uh, bear with me if the answer is shorter than it used to be. I used to answer people in a lot of detail. But these days, I've started 
answering the detail on the website and instead people just, you might just get salamu alaikum, here's a link, goodbye. Like that might be all you get. So just bear that in mind. That's not because I have any problem. I'm just trying to be as efficient as possible and help as many people as possible. So there's some common articles down there. There's a contact page which is extremely difficult to find the actual email on. Uh, there are the video page. And the video page, this is not a comprehensive list of all of the lectures. But these are the ones that I think are the most important. I would personally recommend that you watch all of these uh, if you're interested in developing your knowledge in Rukia. And I hope many of you will have already done so. Um, how to protect yourself from magic, evil eye, and the jinn is a very old one. So is the sinister world of magic. They're very, very old. The information is a little bit outdated. But they kind of give you the, the summary in just an hour. You know, so they're quite useful. Al-Qur'an, the ultimate cure, I think is one of the most important ones that I've done, to be honest. I think this is one of the most important ones. Uh, Dua, the weapon of the believer, is also important. Uh, Rukia is very closely tied to Dua. In, in some aspects, it is Dua. So really understanding how to get your Dua's ex accepted is very important. But the most important part for you guys is the Rukia workshop. And this is a two-day workshop that I did with Abu Ibrahim, Hafidahullah Ta'ala, uh, and basically you can watch through that and there's a lot of detail in there and you know subhanAllah I'm always telling people to watch it but subhanAllah you know I still get people who say I've been to this guy and I think he's a magician and then at the end I'll say look subhanAllah this is mentioned in part 8 of the Rukia course and subhanAllah you know these videos are there for a reason well I, I would not I personally hate my own videos. I, I don't like watching them, I don't like listening to them, I don't like recommending them to anyone, you know, but at the end of the day, this is there because there's information in those two days worth of lectures from myself, from Abu Ibrahim, that is really, really important. Of course, I would recommend Diaries of an Exorcist by Abu Ibrahim uh, and uh, his other work on, on YouTube and on his website with regard to Rukia. Uh, the next thing that I would draw your attention to is the blog. And the reason uh, I post on the blog is, to be honest, uh, maintaining website articles. I try not to post a website article unless it is very thorough and it has references and things like that. The blog posts are quick answers, so they're not as detailed. They may, might be missing some proofs and evidences, but they are, at the end of the day, they're a quick way of being able to answer someone's question. So I have a lot of posts. Some of them I will take th you through uh, today, uh, including... Uh, issues for people with rukia and skin issues, why is my treatment taking so long, how can I protect myself, how do I destroy a ta'weev, magic in the stomach, jinn attacks at night, rukia for children, how do I know my treatment is complete, where do I start, uh, people having problems conceiving, having children, uh, rukia for non-Muslims, truffle water, if a patient refuses treatment, violent jinn, traveling for rukia, frequent nightmares, uh, confusion over how to seek blessings for someone with the evil eye, and people who can't do the full program, what should they do? So there's a lot of material on there, and it's being added to all the time. And the articles themselves are being updated all the time. So it is a resource for you, and I would recommend that you use that resource as much as you are able to do so, uh, inshallah. Uh, if you go to the Rukia section, then there are a number of articles. There is a, a patient information, or a Rukia clinic information page, which basically tells people that there are no current Rukia clinics. Uh, at the moment, I'm not able to, uh, to hold a Rukia clinic uh, in Dubai or back in the UK right this, at this moment. At this moment, the best thing I can do is just teach you and advise you for now. Uh, 
And, but if I do hold any, they'll be mentioned on here. And this is the first thing that I think we're probably uh, going to talk about, the Rukia program for patients. That's the basic Rukia program, the seven-day detox, which we're going to come to talk about as well. Uh, how to protect yourself from the shaitan, Rukia audio, so a couple of links to useful Rukia audio, uh, some comments on ta'weed, and some information for people who are suffering from waswasa. Uh, other than that, there are some articles and things like this, but hopefully that has explained uh, how, to get, how to get the most out of the website. There is one more area of the website that I would like to draw your attention to that maybe you didn't pick up on. It doesn't have a link on the main page because it's a bit experimental, and that is notes.muhammadtim.com. I will see, I don't know if this will let me zoom. Notes.muhammadtim.com. Notes.muhammadtim.com is something a little bit different. This is a collection of proper notes for the Rukia seminar. Now, I haven't finished it. As you can see, section 5, section 9, and section 10 are not finished yet. But if you go on to, for example, the world of the jinn, what you'll see are uh, things like footnotes, links to ayat, uh, hadith numbers, much more detail uh, in terms of proofs and evidences and it, hopefully inshallah if you print it it prints out quite reasonably it has a print format that prints out quite okay so basically what I'm going to do is notes from lectures uh, I will I will put uh, inshallah up for you on here on the notes page and gradually I'll incorporate them into the proper website but for now they're done a little bit separately so on the two-day seminar Rukia training here you've got the introduction the need for this course and the virtue of Rukia, the world of the jinn, the magician, amulets and talismans, the evil eye, and introduce to an introduction to Rukia, the Quran is a cure, the Raqi and his family, and the Rukia session. All of those ten uh, have notes and footnotes and references and uh, other things, inshallah. So I do recommend that you use those notes as well. Those are on notes.muhammadtim.com. Okay. So let's, uh, having got that introduction out of the way, let's start to talk a little bit about practical self-Rukia. And the very first thing I'm going to talk about has nothing to do with uh, the Rukia session at all, but to do with a very, very common question. Perhaps the most common question that I haven't answered on the website yet. So perhaps I will take the audio from this and just write an article based on it. When do I know that I need Rukia? Or when do I know that my family member, friend, brother, sister, father, daughter, whatever it is, needs Rukia? When should we use Rukia? And closely related to that, how do I know whether the problem is medical or What's the word? Supernatural? Paranormal? We'll use paranormal, just as a, because paranormal is probably a good, a good word. It's not, no, it's, it's not normal. How do I know whether it is a normal medical condition or whether it is paranormal, from the paranormal? I would say, honestly, that the simple answer to that question, the answer to that question is a lot more simple than you would first imagine. 
Yes, I could talk for a long, long time about how you build up an understanding about whether something is a normal medical issue or a Rukia issue. We could do that for a long time. We could go over it for ages. But I'll actually skip all of that and just give you a very, very simple solution to the problem. Rukia is a non-invasive, well-tolerated, with no known contraindications whatsoever treatment. It's non-invasive. You don't have to cut anybody up. It is well-tolerated, i.e. it doesn't have any known side effects or any major side effects. Uh, into the, for example, that, you, know, you start doing Rukia and you, you, know, you have this side effect of something else. And as a treatment, it is not contraindicated with anything else, i.e. there is no other, you, know, you can't say you can't do Rukia and take Paris time you can't do rukia and you know have this treatment don't do rukia three hours after eating or something like that it doesn't have any contraindication because this is the case because it's well tolerated it doesn't have anything that it conflicts with there is no harm in you using rukia whenever you feel that it might be warranted there's no negative there's no downside to using Rukia whenever you think that it might be warranted. And that will save you from so much headache of worrying, is it medical, is it this, is it normal, is it paranormal, should I read on myself? The answer is, you should read on yourself. Whether or not it is paranormal is not really the biggest problem. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why you should read upon yourself. First of all, the Prophet ﷺ used to use Rukia for normal medical complaints. In fact, the number of instances of the Prophet ﷺ using Rukia for normal medical complaints, as to the best of my knowledge, outnumber using Rukia for the paranormal to the best of my knowledge. That if you look at the number of instances that he and the companions used Rukia for, scorpion stings, snake bites, uh, psychological disturbances that have nothing to do with the jinn, fever, sickness, outweigh the number of times that a person had a jinn within them or a jinni within them or were afflicted by magic. Of course, the Prophet ﷺ was afflicted by magic once in his life. And there is an example uh, with one of the companions when the Prophet ﷺ removed a jinn from the body of that companion and he said, get out, O enemy of Allah, and I am the messenger of Allah. Uh, and you know, there are some examples of that. But the medical, normal examples of using Rukia for normal medical problems seem to outnumber using Rukia for the paranormal. Therefore, there's no harm in you using Rukia for any problem that you are facing, whether it is physical, i.e. I've got a pain in my shoulder, I've got headaches that I can't get rid of, I've got, you know, uh, like a fever or a cold or a sore throat, or whether it is psychological, because a lot of people will tell you, you know, oh, this person is not suffering from a jinn, it's psychological. And I say to them, this is khata, this is a mistake. 
It's not a mistake in saying the problem is psychological. The mistake is in saying it's psychological, don't do ruqya. And I say to them, this is qawlun shaytani. This is a speech from the shaytan. It is the shaytan who is encouraging this person to say this statement. It is psychological, don't do ruqya. Say it is psychological, full stop, no problem. But it is psychological, don't do ruqya. I fear this is something from the shaytan that the shaytan does not want ruqya to be done. And so he is encouraging the person to say it's psychological, don't do ruqya. Why would you not do ruqya? The Prophet ﷺ approved of ruqya that was done by one of the companions upon a man suffering from madness. And bear in mind that madness and jinn possession are two completely different words in Arabic. He was not suffering from jinn possession. He was not suffering from magic. He was not suffering from the evil eye. He was suffering from a psychiatric, psychological condition. And the Prophet ﷺ approved of his treatment with Rukia, and Rukia was successful in treating him. Why would Rukia be successful in treating him? Those of you who have seen my uh, Quran as a cure, uh, my uh, Quran as a cure lecture may remember uh, the statement of Ibn al-Qayyim that Ibn al-Qayyim uh, said, the Quran is the most complete cure from all physical and psychological illnesses, the illnesses of this world and the illnesses of the hereafter. Not everyone is capable nor is everyone given the success from Allah to seek a cure from it. If the sick person uses the proper method of using the Qur'an as a medicine, with belief, complete faith and acceptance and firm belief in it as a cure, and he fulfills all of the conditions of doing so, no disease will ever overcome him. How can a disease overcome the speech of the Lord of the heavens and the earth, the speech which if it was sent upon a mountain, would render the mountain to dust. The speech that it was if it was sent upon the earth would break the earth into pieces. There is no illness of the heart or the body except that the Quran contains the means to guide how to cure it, why it happens and how to protect from it for those whom Allah gives the understanding of his book. As for diseases of the heart, Allah mentions them in detail along with their causes and the method of curing them. So the one who is not cured by the Qur'an, may Allah not cure him. And the one who the Qur'an is not sufficient for him, may Allah not suffice him in anything. It is known that certain things that we say have particular special qualities and proven benefits. Then what do you think of the speech of the Lord of the worlds? The one who the virtue of his speech over the speech of others is like the virtue of him over his creation. The Qur'an is the perfect cure and it is a beneficial means of protection, a guiding light and a general mercy. If it were sent upon a mountain, it would render it asunder from its greatness and its glory. And I think that in terms of Rukia, that is probably one of the greatest statements that I've ever seen on the topic of Rukia. And you can find it on muhammadtim.com, the Qur'an is a cure. And inside of the lecture, the Qur'an is a cure, uh, from Ibn al-Qayyim. Note that Ibn al-Qayyim, and let's break it down, he said the Qur'an is the most complete cure from all physical and psychological illnesses, the illnesses of this world and the illnesses of the hereafter. 
Not everyone is capable, nor is everyone given success to use it. That's certainly true. If a sick person uses it with complete faith and acceptance and belief in it as a cure and he fulfills all of the conditions of doing so, no disease will ever overcome him. How can a disease overcome this Qur'an? There is no illness of the heart and the body except the Qur'an contains the means of how to cure it, why it happens and how to protect from it for those who Allah gives the understanding of the book. As for diseases of the heart, Allah mentions them in detail. So the one who is not cured by the Qur'an, may Allah not cure him. And the one who the Qur'an is not sufficient for him, may Allah not suffice him in anything. It is known that certain things that we say have special qualities. Think of the science of psychology. If you divide psychology and psychiatry into two separate sciences, psychiatry primarily dealing with the, the drug-related treatment for psychiatric conditions, chemical imbalances in the brain, and so on and so forth. And psychology primarily dealing with speech. Primarily dealing with using speech to, or one of the major treatments being speech, counseling, speaking to people. And if that speech has a proven benefit, and people train on how to give counseling and how to give psychological treatment, and how to help people away from their sicknesses and their medical problems and their psychiatric issues through counseling and through psychology, then if that is the case, how about the speech of Allah? Is that not more deserving to have an effect on someone? The speech of Allah that Allah Azza wa Jal said, that if the Qur'an was sent upon لَوْ أَنزَلْنَا هَذَا الْقُرْآنَ عَلَىٰ جَبَلٍ لَرَأَيْتَهُ خَاشِعًا if this Qur'an was sent down upon a mountain, you would see it tremble and fall asunder out of the fear of Allah. The Qur'an has a physical effect. If the Qur'an, وَلَوْ أَنَّ قُرْآنًا سُيِّرَتْ بِهِ الْجِبَالِ أَوْ قُطِّعَتْ بِهِ الْأَرْضِ أَوْ كُلِّمَ بِهِ الْمَوْتَى If there was a Qur'an that would make the mountains turn to dust, and make the earth rip into pieces, and make the dead speak, it would be this Qur'an. If that is what Allah said about the Qur'an, then what do you think about the Qur'an on a simple sickness that a person is feeling? If this Qur'an could make a mountain turn to dust, could rip the earth into shreds, could make the dead speak, then what do you think about someone who's suffering from a cold or a sore throat? Is not the Qur'an more deserving of having an effect upon them? No doubt. It is known that certain things we say have particular special qualities and proven benefits. Then what do you think about the Lord of the worlds? The one who the virtue of his speech over his creation is the same as the virtue of him over his creation. The virtue of Allah's speech over our speech is equal to the virtue of him over us. There's no comparison. The Qur'an is a perfect cure. And it is a beneficial means of protection, a guiding light and a general mercy. If it was sent upon a mountain, it would render it asunder from its greatness and its glory. This for me is one of the most comprehensive and beneficial statements from the scholars of Islam on the topic of using the Qur'an for a cure.
and it answers our first topic, answers our first question. How do I know when to, when do I need Rukia or how do I know when to use Rukia? The answer is use Rukia whenever you feel the need. Someone might say, well, you wouldn't say that about paracetamol. You wouldn't say that about Panadol, right? You wouldn't say just, you know, whenever you feel like it, just knock a couple of Panadol back. They say if you use it too much, you can overdose, you can become sick. But you can't overdose on the Qur'an. You can't overdose on the recitation of the Qur'an. You can't become sick from reading the Qur'an too much. Rather, you using this Qur'an as a method of treatment in itself is a way of raising your iman. Even if you have no need of it whatsoever. Because you, when you are using this Qur'an to treat a problem that you are suffering from, you are affirming your belief in the power of the speech of Allah. And you are affirming your desperate need of Allah and your attachment and your love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is raising your iman many, many times over. And Rukia is one of the lasting miracles that Allah Azza wa Jal has given. And I say the lasting miracle because the lasting miracle Allah has given is the Qur'an. We agree the Prophet was given a miracle that has not ended until this day. And that is the miracle of the Qur'an. Every other miracle of every other Prophet had an end point. The miracles of the Prophet the Sahaba saw them, but after them, nobody saw them. But this one miracle has lasted until this day. It is the everlasting miracle, the miracle that will go on until the end of time. So this Qur'an, the treatment with it is miraculous. And you can see this in front of your own eyes. You can see, subhanAllah, a person trapped from so many medical problems, so many illnesses, so many issues, paranormal, normal, whatever they are. And you can see them cured in an instant, cured in a day, cured in a week. You see people day after day being cured from things that medical science says there is no cure from. The number of people we have seen cured from schizophrenia, cured from bipolar disorder, serious psychiatric illnesses that medical science does not have a cure for. They have simply just managed the case and just, you know, stopped the symptoms from showing, but they do not have a, a cure for it. We've seen people cured from severe cases of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder in a day, in a week, in a month. This is unheard of. This is a miracle in front of your eyes. <coughs> to see the jinn speak through a person, to see the effect of the jinn upon the person, to see the truth of what Allah told you in the Qur'an. This is not something to give you nightmares. This is something to make your heart firm. To make you realize that the promise of Allah is true. Like when those companions saw the Ahzab gathered together. They said, هَذَا مَا وَعَدَنَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ this is what Allah and His Messenger وسلم, promised us and they have told us the truth. And wallah, this comes to mind when you see the jinn. 
reacting in a person and you see you know, all the effects that are happening and you see the, the, the power of the Qur'an in subduing the jinn and, and removing the jinn and removing magic. When you see these things in front of your eyes, you say, this is what Allah and His Messenger وسلم, promised us. And Allah and His Messenger told the truth. So this is not a reason to make you scared and, and, and not sleep at night. This is a reason to make you sleep at night like a baby. Wallah. And I, I often tell people regarding the ayah in Surah Al-Imran, and I thought I would talk about this, so I, I brought it up on the screen. The statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, إِنَّمَا ذَٰلِكُمُ الشَّيْطَانُ يُخَوِّفُ أَوْلِيَاءَهُ فَلَا تَخَافُوهُمْ وَخَافُونِ إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ this is only the shaitan who makes you scared of his allies. The shaitan wants to make you scared of the jinn. The shaitan wants to make you scared of him and his friends and his allies and the magician and the sihr. Don't be scared of them. But be scared of the one who sent down this Quran. From above the seven heavens. This is the one who deserves fear. Not the jinn, not the shaitan. And Rukia, if it is making you scared of the jinn, then realize there is something wrong here in the heart. There is some deficiency, there is some shortcoming. Because the companions, and this ayah was revealed in relation to, to the battle of Al Ahzab, the battle of the Confederates. Because before that comes, الَّذِينَ قَالَ لَهُمُ النَّاسِ إِنَّ النَّاسَ قَدْ جَمَعُوا لَكُمْ فَاخْشَوْهُمْ فَزَادَهُمْ إِيمَانًا وَقَالُوا حَسْبُنَ اللَّهُ وَنِعْمَ الْوَكِيلُ When all of the confederates gathered together against the Sahaba, رضي الله تعالى عنهم وأرضاهم, they gathered all together against the Sahaba. We said one thing the Sahaba said, they said, this is what Allah and His Messenger promised us. And Allah and His Messenger spoke the truth. In this ayah it says, they said, Fazad, the people said to them, these people have come for you, you should be scared of them. Fazadahum imanan, their iman raised up when they saw the confederates. Their iman went up. They said Allah is sufficient for us and what an excellent disposer of affairs He is. So they were able to turn away by a blessing and a grace from Allah without any harm touching them. And they followed the pleasure of Allah. And then Allah said, The people who said this to you, who were trying to scare you with these people who have gathered against you, this is only the shaitan. Yukhawifu. And the meaning of yukhawifu here is yukhawifukum. He makes you scared. Yukhawifu. Awliya'ah. He makes you scared of his allies. Of the jinn, of the magician, of the enemies of Allah, of the people who are fighting against you in battle. Look at their weapons, look at their power, look at their army, look at the shaitan, look at the magic, look at the conspiracy. فَلَا تَخَافُوهُمْ Don't be scared of them. وَخَافُونِي Be scared of Allah Azza wa Jal. إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ If you really claim to be believers, if you really feel that you are a person of iman, 
then don't be scared. Accept of Allah Azza Now that is an ideal that we aim towards, and no doubt everyone will have moments, you know, we all have it, uh, especially usually when you're reading Rukia and you're, you know, nice and comfortable and you're just in the rhythm of reciting and your eyes a little bit closed and then, you know, the patient just goes, ah, like that, you know. Like, so for sure you go, you jump. But whenever you feel scared, I recommend you recite this ayah. Not because this ayah was revealed to, to you know, to, for this reason, but to remind yourself of who you should be scared of. Because what is the state of the iman of a person who is scared of the shaitan who opens and closes the door? But he's not scared of Allah Azza wa Jal who has his soul in his hand. That's something to think about. You know, and I'm sure Abu Ibrahim told you we have a solution. When they throw the pots and pans, throw them back. You know, really, it, it's not that impressive. You know, people say to me that, you know, what's the scariest thing you've ever seen? But wallah, it's not that impressive. After a while, you get bored of it. You know, like, once you've seen somebody levitate, khalas, like, you know, that, that's it. You know, after that, look, you know, I can jump in the air too. I can open and close the door. I can switch the lights on and off. There's no, you know, after that, you stop being impressed by it. It's not there to impress you to watch a YouTube video and like, wow, look at this, you know, the... They're opening the door and closing the door. Allah, I can open and close the door. You can record a YouTube video of it if you like. It's not for you to feel that fear and to feel that, that, that to be scared of this. But for you to raise in Iman, increase in Iman, and say, this is what Allah Azza wa Jal promised me. This is what Allah told me about. These jinn that Allah Azza wa Jal described in the Quran, I can see their effects. I can see them doing what Allah said they would do. They are increasing each other in weakness. And then you see the miskeen comes with a ta'weev around their neck. And wallahi you say, Sadaqallahu al-Azim. Allah Azza wa Jal told the truth. The, these people sought help from the jinn, so they tied this ta'weev around their neck, seeking the help of the shaitan and disbelieving in Ar-Rahman, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then when they tie this ta'weed around their neck, what do you see? فَزَادُوهُمْ rahaqa. They just became weak and defenseless and miskeen. They come, wallah, it's not working. My life is finished. I can't do anything. I can't breathe. I can't live. I don't know what to do. I took another ta'weed. The problem got worse. It went away for a couple of days. It went away for a couple of weeks. Then it came back worse than it was before. You say, Sadaqallahu al-Azim. Allah Azza wa Jal told the truth. Wallah, Allah Azza wa Jal told the truth. Fazaduhum rahaqa. It just made them more weak and more tyrannical with each other. You know, the two of them transgressing against one another. The jinn transgressing against the magician, the magician transgressing against them. And one of the things that tells you the truth of this is that if you see a magician, and I hope you don't have to come across one, but if you see a magician, then that magician, I can promise you, is terrified to death of the jinn. And if you happen to come across a jinni that has been sent by a magician, then I promise you that jinni is scared to death of the magician. All the two of them are just 
oppressing one another and they're both terrified of one another. Neither of them are scared of Allah. The jinni will say, Wallah, I want to leave, but I can't leave because I am scared to death. The magician will kill me wherever I am. The jinn has given the magician the level of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you grab hold of the magician, the magician says, well, I want to break the magic, but I'm so scared these jinn will get me wherever I am. Hasra, nothing but loss upon each of them, a loss in the other. The two of them are working together and both of them are scared of each other. And neither of them are scared of Allah Azza wa Jal. فَلَا تَخَافُوهُمْ وَخَافُونِ إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ Don't be scared of them. They are nothing to be scared of. Wallahi, one of you who has belief in Allah in his heart, Wallahi, you can bring a thousand or ten thousand of the jinn, they will not stand in front of you, bi-ithnillahi ta'ala. Don't be scared of them. They will not stand in front of you. Wallahi, they will not. Whether they are marada, whether they are afarid, ifrit, marid, whatever they are, they will not stand in front of you, bi-ithnillahi ta'ala. And sometimes this is a, a mushkil that you will hear from some of the people who do ruqya. They will say, it's an ifrit. You know? It's an ifrit. Let me run. This is da'afu iman Did Allah not say, inna kayda shaytani kana da'ifa? The plot of the shaytan is always weak. Ifrit, no ifrit. Married, no married. Whatever jinn they are, whatever kind they are, if Iblis, wallah, if Iblis wahtahu came in front of you. Do you think Iblis can stand in front of Qul a'udhu bi rabbil falaq? If you do, then you need to go back to your iman and ask yourself, what is it that you believe in this Qur'an? Shuf? Better. No problem, inshallah. We'll ask one of the volunteers to take them on the side, inshallah. So, alhamdulillah. So as we say, they can't stand in front of the Qur'an. And they won't stand in front of the Qur'an. Don't let them distract you, inshallah. Otherwise, they will all start distracting <laughs> Wallah, they cannot stand in front of this Qur'an. The mountains could not stand in front of it, and the earth could not stand in front of it, and Iblis wa Junooduhu ajma'een, all of them together could not stand in front of this Qur'an. And this is a mistake that you get from what? You get this mistake from, sometimes you listen to some of the Raqi, maybe he wants to scare you, make you think that he's got some, you know, strong power, you know, this is an ifrit, be scared. La wallah, what, what is there to be scared of? The only thing there is to be scared of is Allah Does that mean that this ifrit cannot hurt you? No, maybe he will hurt you, but if he hurts you, who gave him permission to hurt you? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So who is the one you should be scared of? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're not saying that the jinn can never hurt you and never cause you a problem and will never ever cause you any discomfort. But at the end of the day, whatever they do is bi iznillah. They will not harm anyone except by the permission of Allah. They will not harm anyone except by the permission of Allah. So there's nothing they can do. So this is about raising your iman, trusting in the Qur'an, uh, and using and seeking the Qur'an as a cure. Okay. At this point, uh, we want to talk about okay, practical, uh, practical self-ruqya. 
So what I would kind of like to start with is an article that I have on the blog called Where Do I Start? And this is a part of the, you know, the standard 70% answer that we give to everyone, okay? Where do I start? Now, the reason I wrote this blog post is because a lot of people write emails with long stories about Rukia problems, the history, the people they've seen, the experiences they've had, and usually a plea for help. But the problem is that a lot of people become overwhelmed by their situation. Why do they become overwhelmed? Because they've heard multiple contradictory pieces of advice. It's psychiatric. It's a gin problem. It's needs Rukia, doesn't need Rukia. You need to go to Iraqi, you can do it yourself. This is the problem, that is the problem. It's sihr, it's ayn. It's a jinn possession, it came from this. And then they have on top of that been to anywhere between on average three and five people. Usually at least half of them will have been magicians. At least half of them will have been magicians or will have had some element of magic. So that will have been done on top of them. And then the other people, maybe one guy ripped them off, charged a large amount of money, didn't do anything. And then they come at the end and maybe they've taken a ta'weed or they've taken it off and they just don't know what to do. And they come and they're just overwhelmed. Because that's your standard kind of rukia case. You rarely get someone who comes to you and says, I just started to get a pain this morning. Should I use rukia treatment? When do people come to you? When the problem has been going on for many, many, many uh, years, many weeks, many months, and it's got to a stage of they've been to usually, I think on average, between three and five people. Usually about half of them have been clearly magicians. They've taken ta'weed, they've been to healers, they've paid money, they've lost all of their money. All of these problems have happened, and then they come to you at the end and say, here's my big mess. Tafaddal. Take it. So I wrote this article as a generic advice to kind of correct these problems. And this also works for the people who say that my treatment has gone on for ages, I've self-treat, I've been to this Rocky, this Rocky, this Rocky, this Rukia center, this guy in India, this guy in England, this guy in Dubai, I've been all over the place and this is, you know, I'm, I'm not getting any better. The standard answer that we give to the majority of people is something along the lines of what follows. In most people's accounts of what has happened to them, there is a lot of wrong information and a lot of wrong treatment. That is the basic problem. You might say it's kind of obvious, but it's important to say to people, look, in most people's accounts, there are a lot of wrong information and a lot of wrong treatment that has been done. They've been to the wrong people, they've done the wrong things, they've been told the wrong thing, they've followed the wrong opinion, and they've got themselves tied up in a giant big mess. To get rid of that, we have to start from scratch and build our knowledge step by step. Ikhwani, knowledge is your first weapon against the shaitan. 
and you know that the shaitan is far more scared of the alim than of the abid. Shaitan does not despair of misguiding the abid, the worshipper, but shaitan despairs of misguiding the alim, the person of knowledge. So make yourself an alim, not by in the sense of a scholar, but in the sense of a person of knowledge in this. The more knowledge you will get, it will give you the right tools for the treatment. In general, I would advise that people start with a blank state. Whatever treatment you have done, wherever you've been, whatever you've taken, just put it all in a drawer that says the past. And start from zero. Now, you may have to take some steps with regard to what's happened in the past. No doubt, there may be ta'weev to get rid of. There may be issues that need to be dealt with. But just for the first step, everything just goes in a mental place that says the past. Today is a new day. Bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, I am starting the treatment that is going to bring about a cure by the permission of Allah Azza wa Jal. So, get rid of everything in the past. Because most likely, the wrong things have been done, the wrong advice has been given, the wrong treatment, the wrong people, the wrong way, the wrong opinion. That is what most people suffer from. So just wipe it out. Let's start again. We're not saying to forget the past, because in reality, much of the treatment will depend on what has happened in the past. But just put it on the back burner for now, while we focus on making a new start don't dwell on the difficulties don't dwell on how long it has been or oh, it's been three years i will not get a cure how can i get a cure now when three years has gone i've tried everything all those words put them away all those sentences put them away because this is the problem you meet people they've already decided that allah won't cure them They've already decided. Jezman, you know, completely 100% cast iron that Allah is not going to cure them. Because it's been three years, and I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done the other, and etc., etc. All of that stuff, put it away. It's all in the past. New slate, new treatment, new plan. Don't dwell on the difficulties. Focus entirely on three basic steps get knowledge because if you're relying on the raqi to tell you what's wrong with you then this is where you're going to first of all go wrong start to build up your own knowledge on the topic alhamdulillah there are videos you've seen the video link there are dvds there are books on the topic, the jinn and human, Lord, jinn and human sickness, all these different books. There are, uh, there are maybe 10 books in English on the topic. There are plenty of resources online. There are videos. There are lots and lots of things you can benefit from. Don't become, you know, don't be content to be ignorant and let the Raqi tell you what is wrong because you will know things about your condition that the Raqi doesn't know. And yes, someone might say, well, you know, when you go to the doctor, you don't learn medicine. I would say that's wrong from two points of view. First of all, medicine takes many, many years to learn, whereas Rukia takes a very short length of time. And therefore, you, it's not like you have to spend seven years to learn Rukia. You can learn the basics of Rukia in a day and the, you know, the, the more complicated issues over months and years. But 
you can learn a lot in a very short space of time. And secondly, even now, even now people are realizing, and people are, even with regard to medicine, is that your average person doesn't just go to the doctor and then trust in everything that the doctor says. They also research it themselves now. They, do, they Google search it, you know, what have I got? What might it be? At the end of the day, you know your condition best. So don't be content with not knowing, not understanding, not studying. Don't be content with, I attended a one-day workshop with Muhammad Tim. I attended a one-day with Abu Ibrahim. I, now I've done everything. Learn, study, read until you develop enough knowledge to be able to pinpoint the problem. Number two, put that knowledge into practice. Because a lot of people, the problem that they suffer from is that they have the knowledge, but they're not implementing the knowledge. And a lot of people, I would say almost the majority of people who contact me and say, I'm doing your Rukia program and it's not working, a lot of them, when they are being honest, and sometimes I'll say to them, can you be honest and tell me what are you really doing? They'll say, well, you know, I'm not doing 45 minutes a day, like you said, but you know, I'm doing 45 minutes a week. And yeah, I'm not doing that program you told me to do once a month, but I'm, I'm doing it from time to time. And I, I didn't finish the whole seven days, but I did four. It's not working. What do we usually say to them? Guys, usually the reason it's not working is because you have the knowledge of what to do, but you're not putting that knowledge into practice. You're not actually going out and doing the rukya you've been told to do. Every day, as you've been told to do it. Very rarely, it is tr true sometimes, I'm not gonna say every time that I tell someone do this and they, you know, they come back after a week and say they're cured, but very rarely that the rukya program doesn't work. And it's been done fully and properly, in fact, I can probably name the cases on one hand where the Rukia program is being done completely and fully and the person has had a long length of time where they haven't been cured. On one hand, out of thousands of cases, maybe five people, and I can, I can just go in my head straight away and say so-and-so, 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 who I know is doing the full program in every way and and you know, is adding to that, but is not, being, is, is not getting a cure, and we'll talk about why in the second segment, inshallah, but that's very, very rare. The majority of people who come to you and say to you, I'm doing your Rukia program, just what you said, when they're being honest with themselves, they're not doing the Rukia program in the way that they've been told. Number three deals with the remaining sort of 25% or whatever who are doing it, but still haven't, are having a problem, be continuous and patient, slow and steady. Wallah, I think this is almost, and if someone said this is the key to Rukia, I don't think that you would be wrong. Be continuous and patient, slow and steady. Continuous. Because what do you have the problem with? Somebody comes around to you and says, Muhammad Tim, I've done your Rukia program, before you ask me, I've done all the days, all the reading, all the 45 minutes, as you said. I'm not any better. You say, okay, subhanAllah. How long have you done the program for? A week? Two weeks? Three weeks? There is no time limit that if you do a week, you'll be cured. Or if you do two weeks, you'll be cured. I've seen people cured in one ayah of the Quran. I've seen people cured in one session of Rukia. I've seen people cured in one day of Rukia. 
in a week of Ruqya. My Sheikh Ali bin Ghazi used to say to us, Hafizahullah, he never saw a person take longer than a week to get cured. But he is our Sheikh and he is in Medina. So there is no Qiyas. There is no analogy here. <laughs> he is the Sheikh and we are the student and he is in Medina and we are here. So he said he has never seen a case take longer than or very rarely, I don't say if he said never, but almost he said very rarely or almost never, seen a case that has taken longer than seven days. I've seen cases that have taken three months. I would say the average is three to six months, if there can be an average. I don't think, I've got a lot of statistics because there's a lot of people get treatment, but I'm not sure there can be an average, but if you wanted an average, I would say three to six months if they're doing it continuously and regularly. I've seen people take a year, I've seen three years, and I've seen five years. And I've seen people who have yet to be cured in excess of five years. What is the answer to all of that? Continuity. Regular, continuous ruqya. It's not about, let me read Al-Baqarah or finish the Quran and then the next day I don't do anything. And the next day I don't do anything. And the next day I don't do anything. And the next day I don't do anything. It's about, take your 45 minutes and some people say, 45 minutes is not enough for me. The reason I give this 45 minutes, well, it's not from the sunnah, I'll be honest with you. There's no sunnah of 45 minutes or whatever. I give it because it's doable for most people even if they're working. 45 minutes is not so much that if you're, you know, you're working, you can't do it. And in general, I hope that that is the minimum amount that kind of seems to produce a reasonable result in a reasonable length of time. And usually when we do half an hour, we feel like we haven't really got going. And usually, you know, if we do an hour, it's too long for some people. So I, I, and this is my preference. It's not set in stone. And whenever something is not set in stone, it means you are free to disagree. And you're free to do something else. You're free to say the minimum is an hour and a half, an hour, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. You guys are free to develop your own opinion on the topic. There is no, uh, you know, sort of requirement that you should take what I say. But as a general rule, I have found only from my limited experience, that 45 minutes roughly seems to work for most people as a, a basic standard. But it needs continuity. It needs every day, not just every other day, not every week, not every weekend. It needs every day. It needs patience. And we're going to talk about this in the second part of the segment, inshallah, about overcoming difficulties. It needs to be slow and steady. Again, Common question that is asked, probably one of the most common questions we get asked, is it sihr, is it ayn, is it mas, is it jinn, is it dot dot dot. Again, my general response is, don't rush. La tasta'jil. Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَكَانَ الْإِنسَانُ ajula. Mankind is always rushing. Always trying to, to rush ahead. Wait, inshallah. Do your basic ruqya, be patient, and Allah Azza wa Jal will open up to you the answer as to what is afflicting to you. He is Al Fatah, the one who opens up solutions for our problems. That is one of the meanings of Al Fatah, the one who opens up for us the solution to our problems. Be patient, don't rush. One of the biggest things I tell people in Rukia training is I tell people in Rukia training that the, one of the most common mistakes that a Raqi makes is they rush. 
they read one ayah of sihr, the person starts flapping around, khalas, you are mas'hur, you've had sihr done, it was done in this place, it's buried here, this is the jinn's name, there are five jinn, one of them is a snake and one of them is a dog and one of them flies through the air and one of them is a marid and one of them is this and one of them is that. Don't rush. Rushing is from the shaitan. Didn't the Prophet ﷺ say? Rushing is from the shaitan. Rushing to a diagnosis, rushing to find what is this issue, what, this is a big problem. Because the shaitan lead you. And one of the things we always say, never, ever, ever to allow happen in a rukia session, is never allow the shaitan to lead your rukia session. How do people allow the shaitan to lead the rukia session? They start becoming reactive to what the shaitan they leave their plan for the Rukia completely. They start becoming purely reactive and they start engaging in conversation. They start believing what the shaitan is saying. And before long, the shaitan is controlling the Rukia session. And the Raqi is not controlling the Rukia session. Slow and steady. Patient. Let the situation come. You have an idea it's sihr because the person has started to react to something which is commonly associated with sihr. Okay, no problem. Put this as a diagnosis in your, let's say a prognosis in your mind. I, an initial diagnosis, something that you have not yet confirmed, you have not yet set in stone, you don't need to say anything to the person, just keep it in your mind that it looks like a case of sihr to me. That's what it looks like. Bismillah, keep going. 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, whatever it takes, until Allah Azza wa Jal settles in your heart what it is that you think person and what action you think you should take. Don't allow yourself to rush because when you rush, what will happen is you will become reactive to the shaitan where the shaitan screams and you then scream, you know? And the shaitan does this and you read this. You drop reading al-falaq and off you go reading something else. And then the shaitan says, the magic is buried in a garden in Pakistan outside your father's house. And what do you do? And this is a true story. I said true case studies. Brother went, phoned the relatives in Pakistan, bring the digger, JCB, dig the garden up. Mafi. <laughs> Mafi. Nothing. Why? The shaitan, what did the Prophet ﷺ describe the shaitan? He is the biggest liar. All he wants to do is just get you interested. And this is the danger of, you see a lot of people posting these videos, shaitan confesses to big conspiracy, you know, we are, we are actually running the government of the world and this and this and this. All he is doing is trying to get you to stop doing rukia. If he is running everything or nothing, Allah is the one who is in control. Leave that which doesn't concern you. What did we learn in Al-Arba'ina Nawawiyya? Min husni islam al-mar tarkuhu ma la From the perfection of a person's faith is to leave that which doesn't concern him. And getting involved in talking to shaitan, tell me then when is the Dajjal coming? Well, I'll tell you. You know this Dajjal, I saw him last week. And he was in here and he was doing this. 
And you start and start, and before long, there's no falaq, there's no surat al-nas, there's no fatiha, there's no ayatul kursi, there's just dajjal is coming next week, off we go, post it on Facebook, post it on YouTube. It shouldn't be surprising to you that the shaitan lies, and lies frequently. They will say, if you do, I will, I will say, I'm not interested, bismillah. This is a little bit of a negotiating skill. You want to get the shaitan out. Don't negotiate on the first time. If any of you, I'm not a great negotiator, but if any of you are good at sort of business negotiations, you never negotiate on the first offer. Nobody ever negotiates on the first offer. Nobody ever comes and says, right, you know, on the first one, yeah, yeah, I'll accept. You know, the shaitan is like, for example, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave, I'll leave. Carry on reading. Ignore him, just carry on reading. Get him to the point where he is so near to death, he really will leave. Otherwise, when you start accepting the first offer to leave, the shaitan is just basically just playing with you. Say, you know, and this happens a lot to me. You read, the shaitan says, I will leave. Say, okay, bismillah, leave. I haven't left yet. Seriously, these are the words you get. I'm still here. Like this. Like children, like small children, yani, subhanAllah. Like read, say, Ukhraj Allah, leave O enemy of Allah. Two minutes later, I'm still here. <laughs> like this. And yani, subhanAllah, they, you don't, don't get yourself distracted. Don't let yourself become in the control of the shaitan. Yes, it happens to all of us. Wallah, I'm not telling you something that hasn't happened to me. It happens to all of us. But this is why, in general, we teach you these things. That be slow and steady. Don't rush. Don't jump up when he says the magic is outside in the garden and run outside with your spade and your shovel. You can get someone else to do that. I'm not saying ignore it. You can get someone else to go and do that. But you carry on with your ruqya. When you go into your ruqya, you should have a ruqya plan. You should have yourself a ruqya plan. You should have yourself a, a game plan. This is what I'm going to do. I am going to read 45 minutes minimum. So you start reading and you feel violently sick. You get stomach cramps. Really, really bad. You need to go to the bathroom right away. But you're not going to go. You have a game plan. And the shaitan is just winding you up, just prodding you. It's not like you're possessed. He's just nipping you like before he was nipping my hand here while I'm talking to you. Why? Because I just want to say hello. Just want to tell you to stop doing it. So they just start like nipping here. So subhanAllah, you'll get some of these things when you're doing ruqya. This is nothing. This is just ta'ifun min shaitan This is just like a, a, small, uh, a small touch of the shaitan. A small thing from the shaitan. If you are solid as a rock, continuous, patient, slow, steady, just keep on going through Rukia. Blow. Pain has gone away. Bismillah. Everything is fine. Off we go again. Slow and steady. That is how you overcome it. It's not like a big sort of frenzy of like, you know, just screaming and shouting and then it will go. Just slow and steady. And again, there's not, that's not to say you can't put more pressure on the jinn. For sure, when you're doing Rukia from time to time, you want to... Uh, put a little bit of pressure on the jinn, raise your voice, get a bit closer to the person, read right in their ear. But 
that should be sort of, it shouldn't be peaks and troughs, just peaks. You know, like from time to time you go up and you put a bit of energy into it, but then you're still back down to the basic game plan that you have, which is that I am going to read for 45 minutes at least. I might read 50, 55, an hour, an hour and a half, but I'm not going any less than 45 minutes. If I, you know, the house is on fire, I'm reading. And that's what we usually tell, we usually tell people. You know, in general, do not allow the shaitan to dictate to you when you start, when you stop, when you talk, when you finish, when he will go, when he will not go. Otherwise, you're losing control of the situation. You maintain that control of the situation. You read until you want to stop reading as much as Allah makes easy for you. And don't allow the shaitan to have that control over you where you're rushing, you're following every, especially when it gets really bad. I mean, I, even I sometimes, you know, if the shaitan, you sometimes you get some information, you think it's true, you act on it, no problem. But the problem is when you're following every cough and every word that comes out of that shaitan. You know, shaitan, stop, 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 stop. Okay, what? That doesn't work. That doesn't work in Rukia. Carry on reading. Then after five minutes, you say, what do you have to say? You dictate to them when they speak. You dictate to them when they come and go. You dictate to them with the permission of Allah. Not let them dictate to you and tell you when they start, when they stop, when they speak, when they finish. You know, when, they, when you start your Rukia, when you stop your Rukia. Don't let them dictate to you. And I know it can be difficult, especially if you're reading on yourself, you might get the choking where you can't read anymore. But again, you might keep a little bit of olive oil or something we'll talk about overcoming problems. And you know, you just put there or a little bit of zamzam, bismillah, and just keep on going. You know, yeah, for sure the shaitan can stop you from time to time. You know, like for sure if you hear something like a big crash in the other room, usually you're gonna just, you know, go out and look. Very few people will sit there and keep on reading. But basically, don't try not to allow this to become the norm. Try not to allow the norm is that you're running everywhere after the shaitan and you're running upstairs and downstairs and you're here, there and everywhere. Try to keep it that you are the one who is dictating the pace of the Rukia session. And that will help the shaitan to stay in his place uh, by the permission of Allah. That will help the, you to have a control. Otherwise, what happens is people start to say, when is it that the doors start banging and the windows opening and the pots and pans are flying and the lights are coming on and off? Usually at that point, you've lost control. Usually at that point, you have lost control of the Rukia session. You haven't got the shaitan where you want the shaitan to be and instead the shaitan is cooking for you in the kitchen. You, you know, you need, you need to be, have that control of the session as much as you can. So I can't emphasize enough the importance of being continuous and patient, slow and steady. Don't be the one who is like the flag in the wind or the leaf in the wind and you're fluttering left and right. You're the rock. Just keep on reading. The waves crash against you. Keep on reading. You know, the storm comes. You're still there the next day. Your example is the example of the rock, not the example of the leaf or the feather that blows in the wind everywhere and the storm comes and you're on the other side of the city. Well, you should be the example of the rock. When the waves are coming, the storm is coming and you are just exactly still. Nothing is affecting you by the permission of Allah illa As Allah said, إِيَّدُرُّوكُمْ إِلَّا أَذَى the only harm they do to you is other. It's 
you know, a, a prick here, a poke here, a feeling of sickness, you know, spot of having a bad stomach, sore throat, you know, a few words, I'm going to do this to you, I'm going to kill this person, I'm going to find you, I'm going to, you know, whatever. And we say to them, Faqdima antaqad. Faqdima antaqad. Innama taqdi hadihi al-hayati dunya Do whatever you want. Faqdima antaqad. Do whatever you want. Because the only thing you're going to do to me is in this hayat al-dunya. Inna amanna bi rabbina. We have believed in our Lord that he might forgive us our sins and forgive us for what has preceded, like the magician said of the magic. Wallahu khayrun wa abaqa. And Allah Azza wa Jal is better and more lasting and that which comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is better and more lasting. So don't become again uh, reactive to the threats. You know, I know where your family live. I'm going right now to, you know, kill your children or something like that. Say, Like the magician said to Fir'aun when Fir'aun said, I'm going to string you up on a date palm tree and cut your hands and feet off from opposite sides and I'm going to punish you with a severe punishment. What did they say to Fir'aun? They said, you will not be able to take us away from that which has come to us. Do whatever it is that you are planning on doing because whatever you're planning on doing is only this hayat dunya this lowly, worthless life. So if you harm me, you're only going to harm me in this dunya. You don't hold my jannah, you don't hold my hellfire, you don't hold whether Allah is pleased with me or angry with me. So whatever you're going to do to me is only going to be done to me in this hayat dunya at the worst case scenario. And in reality, you'll find that they are unable to do anything to you in the first place. But even if they do something to you, most of the time, like Allah said, they will only harm you with the smallest insignificant harms. A little prick, a little pain, a little disturbance, nothing big. Some words, some threats, nothing big. They will only harm you with the small harms, these insignificant harms. And if they harm you with something greater than that, then they will only harm you in this world. They don't hold your Jannah, they don't hold your Nar, they don't hold the pleasure of Allah or the anger of Allah. They don't hold the power of Allah, they don't hold Malakutu Samawati Wal Ard, the dominion of the heavens and the earth. So, really, why should you be bothered? They don't hold anything. And therefore, there's nothing for you to be concerned about because the worst they can do to you is in this life, nothing else. Number two, we advise, so this first one is the three basic steps of learn, put that knowledge into practice, and be continuous and slow and steady. Don't rush, don't become reactive too much. Try to be proactive, try to, you be the one who is sort of controlling the, the Rukia session with the permission of Allah. And, and try to, to sort of, you know, have yourself a game plan that you follow and you stick to it regularly. Number two, get your intention right. Because all of us have made some pretty big mistakes in our life. 
all of us. Every one of us sitting in this room, bearing in mind that we set the limit as 15 and over, so I'm presuming everyone in this room is an adult, more or less. So every one of us in this room has made some pretty huge mistakes. Disobedience to Allah, turning away from Allah, those mistakes are the biggest obstacle to your success. Like Umar radiallahu an wrote to one of the leaders, and if I remember it was Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, but I might be wrong on that. And he said to him that I do not fear your enemy harming you, but I fear for you your sins. Because the sins are what causes your enemy to gain authority over you. Those jinn cannot harm you. But when you sin and you disobey Allah, you open up an opportunity for your enemy to get control over you because of the sin that you did. And I'm, when I say to you that this is probably one of the biggest obstacles to a cure that people are not aware of, and I said to you I would talk to you about some things people are not aware of, people tend to have tunnel vision on the ruqya. So it's all about how much Qur'an am I reading, how many times am I treating myself, how much zamzam water, what honey and black seed, and you know, what treatments am I doing, and how many times do I get hijama done every month, and all of the rest. Tunnel vision. But they're ignoring the elephant in the room, the huge big thing that is sitting there that is stopping the ruqya from working, and that is sin. And disobedience to Allah is So take a few moments before you embark on a Rukia program to think through the mistakes you've made, recognize them, and start the road to repentance. Ask Allah to purify your intention. These are all du'as that you can link to on du'as.com. Uh, purify your intention. Which du'a have we got there? Allahumma inni a'udhu bika. And ushrika bika wa ana a'lam wa astaghfiruka lima la a'lam. That's one example. To make things easy for you, like the dua, Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahlan wa anta taj'alu al-hazna idha shi'ta sahla. For example, to forgive you, like as, and these are just example duas. These are not the only duas you can use. These are just some example duas. Astaghfirullah ala, astaghfirullah alladhi. La ilaha illa hu al hayyul qayyum wa atubu For example, be committed to learning proper Islamic beliefs and following the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in everything that you do. Someone might say, you know, I give my attention right now to Rukia, and when I'm cured, inshallah, I'm going to you know, learn my, my aqidah, my sunnah that I should be doing. That's not going to work. Having the right belief in Allah is a prerequisite for your treatment to work. It is very, very hard to treat yourself when you have mistakes in your belief. And again, we bring back the quote of Al-Imam Ibn Al-Qayyim. Rahimahullahu ta'ala, uh, he said, if a sick person uses the proper method of using the Quran as a medicine with complete belief, faith, and acceptance, and a firm belief in its cure and fulfills the conditions of doing so, no disease will 
overcome him. No disease will, will overcome him. So what all of those things indicate is we have to get the right belief. We have to purify our belief in Allah, our belief in the Quran, our trust in Allah, our reliance in Allah, our commitment to following the sunnah of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Man amila amalan laysa alayhi amruna rad. And I was talking about this last night. Went on just we did a little preview of this course on Huda TV last night. And uh, I said this that if you think about this hadith of Aisha in the context of Rukia, what does it mean? Whoever does an action that is not in accordance with what we have brought with our sunnah, it will be rejected. What does that mean for your ruqya? It means that if your ruqya is not in accordance with the sunnah, it won't work. Because the Prophet said, Man amila amalan laysa alayhi amruna rad. It won't work. It will be rejected, i.e. it will not have the desired effect. It will not bring you anything in the sight of Allah. Not ajr in the akhirah and not any fa'ida, any benefit in the dunya. Therefore, if you want your ruqya to work, you need to have a commitment to learning proper Islamic beliefs and to following the sunnah of the Prophet Because if you don't, the greatest suffering that you put yourself at risk of in this dunya, forget about the akhirah, is that it just won't work. It won't work. It will be rejected. It will not have the effect that it was intended or that was intended by it. So that means going back to learning, going back to taking some time out to go over your Islamic, uh, Islamic beliefs, to learning the details. It's not as simple as you think. It's not just La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There are Lots of elements there, you need to learn lots of subcategories, lots of rules and conditions, and you have to look at yourself and really work on those. And I think this number two is probably, point number two, is probably one of the major reasons that people get stuck in their ruqya. Intention, sin, and not having the right belief and the right following of the sunnah, and therefore, all of the ruqya they are doing, it's like, running, you know, you're, you're kind of running against a, an escalator or something like that. You know, you're running and it's moving you the other way. You're moving upwards and it's moving you downwards. So every time you take a step forward, it moves you two steps back. So we don't want that to happen in people's rukia. We don't want someone to be saying, my rukia isn't working. But when you look at it, they're still attached to the ta'weed. Maybe they've taken the ta'weed off. But it's not just enough to take off the ta'weed. You have to take it away from your heart as well. You have to take it out of your heart and off your neck. Or out of your heart and off your, off your wrist. It's not good enough just taking it off your wrist. You have to actually take it out of your heart. The attachment to it, the trust in it, the reliance in it instead of Allah. All of that has to go. Otherwise the danger is that the ruqya will not work. Because you have an obstacle or a barrier there that is stopping this ruqya from being successful. So as a, a basic idea again... YouTube, there are some uh, good videos. I have some very simple videos, four-part on Aqidah, Islamic creed and things like that. Just basic stuff on getting your dua accepted, 
understanding the right of Allah over you, understanding the right of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know, listening to the description of the Prophet Sallallahu and how he used to behave, striving for his etiquettes and his manners. All of these things are critical in Ruqya. Because at the end of the day, the acceptance of your deeds is based upon two things. The first is that it's done sincerely for Allah, and that means you have to have the right belief, the right belief about Allah, the right trust in Allah, the right reliance upon Allah, and it has to be done in accordance with the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Okay. Number three, read the full Rukia program step by step. It's essentially a summary of the action you're going to need to take so get familiar with it from day one, right? Let's do that, let's follow the advice. Here we go, number three, the full Rukia program for patients. And again, uh, this is not the, this should be seen as a minimum standard, not as the perfect solution to everything. I will be honest, it is like many things in Rukia, it is an effort, an ijtihad, to try to give you the best option for the cure. At the end of the day, it is not set in Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, that you have to follow every single dot. As I've said, it is an ijtihad from some of the shiukh, some of the scholars uh, that I've met, that I've learned from, and it is my best effort to bring that to you. It is not necessarily, uh, you know, time by time, day by day, uh, mentioned in the sunnah and there's no harm in that and I will bring you later on the quote of our Sheikh, Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Baz rahmatullahi alayhi uh, with regard to the fact that this is permissible and this does not fall under the category of bid'ah it is permissible for a person to give a ruqya program or to give a set of steps to do as long as those individual steps are part of the, the sunnah of the Prophet so I start by saying all of our ruqya patients, whether those who have previously attended the Rukia clinic or those who are receiving advice by email, need to have a strict minimum program which they follow, either through self-treatment or with the help of friends and family. Even if you are going to Iraqi, even if you have a Rukia center next door who is taking care of all of your needs, meant this program is the basic program you yourself do and let the Raqi be the addition. In some ways, it's kind of like the role of, I believe, that the role of the Raqi is kind of like the role of a consultant in a hospital. Every sick person who goes through the door doesn't see the consultant. They have nurses, they have triage, they have junior doctors, they have various people who are treating them, looking after them, and taking care of them. When they get stuck on an issue they can't deal with, they push it up the chain to someone more senior. If they get stuck, they push it up the chain to someone more senior. And I believe that this is an excellent model for Rukia in general. It works very well with Rukia. See the Raqi as a consultant. You don't need him to do the treatment for you. You don't need him to be there for you every day of the week. You just need when you get stuck when you're not getting something, something is just not quite working, you go and see someone who has more expertise and that person will just give you a quick session of Rukia, a quick treatment, a quick bit of advice, a little bit of a help, 
or tweak what you're doing a little bit, tweak the medication a little bit, and off you go. Bismillah. So there is no, uh, you know, I see that as being the future of the role of the Raqi. I don't think the role of the Raqi is to read on every sick person. I don't think it's doable. There's just too many people. I think the role of the Raqi is to act like a consultant would act in a hospital, whereby you're dealing with the complicated cases that people are struggling to, struggling to deal with. You're giving advice on issues that people can't manage, and you're kind of taking care of that role from a supervisory role rather than a day-to-day -day role. Now, having said that, just like you have junior doctors in hospital, I still believe you should have a Raqi that fills that role. When you are training to be a Raqi, I don't think that you should be just saying, I'm only there for consultation. Because I think you need to build up your hours and your experience. So I think when you are training to be a Raqi, it helps to read on someone full-time. 10 people, 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, full-time. It's a really good system. You know, the, the reason they have this system in hospitals is because it works. You have the sort of day-to-day -day care. You have more specialized care, more specialized care, more specialized care like this. I think if we implement this in Rukia, we will really solve the majority of the problems that people face with regard to Rukia. Is that when you first get into Rukia, you're like, you know, the first day junior doctor, first day in hospital, yeah, and you are basically dealing with everything. You're hands-on, you deal with the person, you know, you're, you're really involved in the case, you're really frequently. As you develop some years of experience, then what you're going to do is you're going to train people underneath you who are going to go out and do that, and you are going to take the role of an advisor or a consultant. You're still doing Rukia on people, because once you stop doing Rukia, you forget how things work, and you stop learning. So you're still doing Rukia, but you're doing Rukia on the cases that the people you've trained can't manage. Or you're giving advice on specific issues. And that's how I see that our shuyukh have done it. You know, like, I don't see myself to have reached a level where I'm just, you know, sitting giving advice. But at the end of the day, my shuyukh, our teachers, you know, now they don't do Rukia on a day-to-day -day basis. But what we, they do is they're kind of there for us when we get stuck. And we likewise have people who are students of hours for whatever that good that is, and they are doing Rukia on a more frequent basis, and they're kind of pushing up the cases that they don't know to us, and we're kind of pushing it onto the shuyukh when we need it. And there's a system, a hierarchy in place. Works really, really well. How do you start off? Reading on yourself, reading on your family, reading when it's a headache. You know, much easier to learn Rukia when you're dealing with a headache than when you're dealing with a jinni. Because the jinni is going to put some pressure on you. It's like, you know, the, the, the guy who comes into hospital who's bleeding to death. Much easier to deal with the guy who comes in and he's healthy and, you know, you, you just get yourself oriented before you have to deal with the case of the guy who comes in and he's bleeding and he's, you know, uh, about to die. So you kind of, you know, you learn in stages. You begin just reading on yourself when you have a headache, a sore throat, reading on your kids when they cry at night then reading maybe on someone you think might have a rookie problem. Alhamdulillah, turns out it was just a, you know, a little bit of maybe of the evil eye, nothing too bad. They got over it. You build up your confidence. You read on somebody else. Then you start, you know, you have your first really difficult jinn case. You, you know, you see that to its conclusion, inshallah. And the person gets better, alhamdulillah, you gain some confidence. And you keep going and going and going. And you keep on naturally, you, you sort of change, you know. Until probably last year, I was probably doing full-time full-time but what I would consider full-time Rukia as in all the time I could give to Rukia I was giving to Rukia 
Maybe now I've come to Dubai a little bit less and more of my time I'm giving on content and teaching a little bit. Uh, likewise, the shiuch that I have taken from now pretty much don't do any rukia at all. All they do is deal with like the, the, con the issues that I don't know the answer to. And there's a, you know, there's a long system. There's not three people in it. There's many, many layers, many people more senior and more senior and more senior and so on and so forth. It works very, very well. And you know, it pretty much works all around the world in healthcare. So there's no reason why it shouldn't, the system shouldn't work in Rukia. And I think that this is, is something that we, you know, we have. So whether you have a Raqi or not, I don't recommend that you rely upon the Raqi. I don't recommend that you make the Raqi the primary source of Rukia, even if he is the, the most junior who is just doing Rukia every day to learn experience. I recommend that you take control of your own Rukia treatment. You know, uh, I don't know about, I, I keep using these analogies to medicine, but I think it's, it, there's so many parallels, you know. Uh, you know, in England right now, the big thing is the, the National Health Service are all about giving patient choices, you know, like the patient should have the choice of the doctor, the patient should have the choice of the treatment, and you know, all of these kind of things. You know, I also think this is very applicable, you know, to Rukia. Take control of your own treatment. Don't let the Raqi be the one who is kind of forcing you into one alley or another and you're kind of stuck. You, don't, you, know, you are reading on yourself. If the Raqi dies the next day, Alhamdulillah, you're still reading on yourself. You have a treatment for yourself. If the Raqi turns out to be suspicious or no good, Alhamdulillah, you're still reading on yourself. You have, you know, you have that basic standard. So this program is all about achieving the basic standard through self-treatment or with the help of friends and family. Some people will say, look, and usually these are people who do Rukia. They say, look, Muhammad Tim, you know, I'm sure you're, you know, inshallah, you look sincere, but what you're telling the people can never work because you know just as well as I do that people who have serious jinn problems cannot read on themselves. I disagree with that from two, two angles. Firstly, I disagree that a person with a severe jinn problem cannot read upon themselves. Yes, they may not be able to read on themselves enough to bring about a complete uh, cure by the permission of Allah, but I, I've never, almost never, apart from someone in a coma, I have never met a rookie, a patient who couldn't read anything upon themselves. Maybe not. Coma and one person who the shaitan had taken hold of their tongue and they couldn't, they couldn't speak any words at all. They couldn't speak or hear any words at all. Other than very extreme cases, there's almost nobody who can't read upon themselves in some way or another. Yes, it may not be quote-unquote enough, but that doesn't or should never stop you trying. You keep going. And then the throat goes, drop down, no problem, wake up again. Until you get it, you know, you're fighting the jinn. Too many people are only doing rukia within their comfort zone. This is another thing. I, I know I'm getting into some of the things from the second session, but they just come up and I, you know, they, they kind of, they jump in there. Too many people are doing rukia within their comfort zone. Big problem. What do I mean by doing rukia within your comfort zone? You're only doing rukia as long as it is comfortable for you. Either as a raqi or as a patient. 
So you start Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. By the time you finish Surah Al Fatiha, you have a pain in your hand, you keep going, pain gets worse, arm starts shaking, and that's it. Stop. Why? Because you've gone to the level of what you're comfortable with and you've stopped doing Rukia. Shaitan knows this is happening, and of course, what does the Shaitan do? The Shaitan just basically is within his own comfort zone as well. So he can handle it. Of course, he will, it will go eventually, but because the Quran is more powerful. But you're not doing enough, and you're just basically, you know, rather than burning the Shaitan with a huge fire, you're just basically, you know, tickling him with a cigarette lighter. You know, you're just like, you're not burning him, you're just sort of annoying him. And yes, he is suffering. Yes, eventually he will leave. But you're taking him very slowly. You know, you have a great big fire with gasoline and, you know, everything there. And you've got this little, you know, oven lighter and you're just, you know, warming his hand with it. You know, you need to be taking the full steps. You need to be pushing it until the point where you collapse on the floor. Because when you're pushing yourself that hard, you're pushing the shaitan even harder. And that is what makes it go away quickly. A lot of people say, why is my Rukia treatment taking so long? Usually another answer, apart from the sin and the other issue is, you're inside of your comfort zone. You're inside of a nice happy place where you read the Quran until you feel just a little bit uncomfortable and then you stop. And you imagine I give the analogy of a boxing match. You go up to your opponent, you know, you punch him twice and then you sit down, round two. Get to your opponent again, punch him twice, sit down, round three. You know, eventually, if you keep on doing it, I'm sure he will eventually fall over, but you're taking a very long time about it. As opposed to going for your opponent with everything that you have and, you know, with everything you can manage until he falls down or you do. That is the way that you need to do, Rukia. You push yourself beyond that comfort zone. I'll give you another analogy. When you're trying to lose weight through doing exercise, you know, you go to the gym and, you know, you pick up a nice light weight, lift it twice, put it down. <sighs> Going home now. Take a very, very long time for you to see any difference. You go and you lift the heaviest weight that you can lift until your arms have gone and you're, you know, you're, you've got no more energy in you. What do you find? You go the next day or the next week and you can lift even more than you could lift before. And you find that strength is increasing, energy is increasing, stamina is increasing. Rukia is the same. You push that shaitan, you push the rukia to the point where you said 45 minutes, right, today I'm going to do 50, then 55, then an hour, like a treadmill, you know, then an hour and 15 minutes, then an hour and a half, then two hours. I'm pushing it. When you're pushing it like that, the shaitan doesn't stay for very long. Because however bad you feel, like Allah said, and I always say Surah Al Imran has so many lessons in it for Rukia. Like Allah said, I'm a hundred times worse than you are. You're feeling bad, they're feeling worse. This is an enemy. The problem is the enemy is inside, which is, makes it a little bit difficult because usually when the enemy is outside, you fight and then you know, there's a break and you go back to your camp and they go back to theirs. The problem when the enemy is inside is you can't really take a break and it is very physically and mentally straining and demanding. But you push it, you push it and push it and push it until you physically can't do any more. That is when the Rukia is the most effective. Will it still work if you just do it within your comfort zone? No doubt, because the Quran, Allah will always give an eventual victory to the believers. But this just, you know, 
tickling the shaitan, this doesn't, doesn't produce a, a serious, long-lasting effect. All you're doing is just irritating the shaitan. And at the end of the day, what do you think, from the, what do you think the shaitan does? When you just irritate the shaitan, the shaitan responds with full force. Because the shaitan knows if you keep on doing this, he's going to die. So the shaitan responds with a few times and he's badly hurt. He'll hit you back a couple of times. You'll feel pretty horrible. You might faint. You might wake back up again. You might throw up. And then again, you just take your breath as much as you can. You really need to give it your full effort. A lot of people, problem is Rukia is within the comfort zone. And they're not really pushing themselves. They're not pushing the shaitan. And therefore, it takes a very long time. It does go away, but it takes years and years and years to get rid of. And people have prolonged problems. They, they feel horrible because during those, all of those years, the shaitan is giving 100% effort to get you to stop doing the ruqya. So the shaitan is torturing you, keeping you up at night, attacking you, throwing you around, making you faint, making you vomit. You know, all of these horrible things are happening, making you scream and speak. All these things are happening, but you're never hitting the shaitan back with enough power. You're just basically just irritating the shaitan. So you get all of the negative and very little of the positive. You get all of the, the negative reactions, but you're not getting very many of the positive reactions. That's not to say that we necessarily follow reactions, as in we use reactions as a judge. Again, as I said to you, don't let the shaitan lead the Rukia session. One of the ways the shaitan leads the Rukia session is when you allow the shaitan to react and you start changing your Rukia based on what the shaitan is, is how the shaitan is reacting. Again, someone with experience in Rukia might say, you have to do it. I would say you learn experience when to do it and it takes time to develop the experience of when to change your Rukia based on a reaction in general to begin with. Try not to change your rookie at all. Just stick to your game plan. Just stick to your, you know, if shaitan, you were planning to read Ayatul Kursi three times, and at the end of the third time, the shaitan is screaming, just stick to your game plan. You're three times, and then move on to your next ayah. That's not to say that it wouldn't have been better to carry on. But I don't want you in the beginning to develop the habit of letting the shaitan dictate to you what you read and what you don't read. Later on, as you develop experience, inshallah, you'll be able to tell the genuine reaction from the fake reaction, inshallah, and you might get an idea, right, yeah, I need to repeat this ayah and repeat this, uh, this phase. But to begin with, just try to, as you can in the beginning, try to stick to your basic rukia plan as much as you can. So back to this person who says, Muhammad Tim, you're not teaching people the truth. What do you do to the person who is choking, can't read, I said, first of all, I don't agree that they can't do rukya on themselves. I believe they can, even if it's only one ayah, then two ayahs, then three ayahs. And I've tried this with many severe rukya patients who can't breathe, can't speak. When they've done this, within a week, they're reciting al-falaqan al-nas in full. You know, at least once. So you push yourself. Secondly, this second statement, with the help of friends and family. I made to you a statement at the beginning of this lecture. I said you won't find a Raqi who will read on you enough, generally. As a general rule, you won't find a Raqi who is going to read on you long enough to get rid of the problem. I stick by that. But what you might find is a family member. 
maybe the Raqi can't give you 45 minutes a day, but the family member, the spouse, the husband, the wife, the son, the daughter, the parents, the uncle, probably can give you 45 minutes a day. So if you see someone who's really struggling, uh, ideally don't wait for them to seek Rukia. Don't wait for your family member to seek Rukia because we're all striving for that 70,000, inshallah. Don't wait for them to, to ask you. Just, Bismillah, say, look, I'm just going to read on you. And if they say no, then say, there are many fatawa, including fatawa from our major scholars that say that reading on someone is not seeking Rukia. Seeking Rukia is asking someone to read. Reading on someone is not seeking, is not seeking Rukia. So, you know, try to preempt them. Even if they ask you, we said it's not haram for them to ask you. And maybe it's wajib for them to ask you, so no big deal there. But if you see a family member, neighbor, friend, whatever, who needs a bit of help, then you be preemptive. You go there and you uh, offer to read over them. Bismillah. And often what you will be able to do is you'll be able to give a lot more time than the person would be able to get from a, 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 a proper, quote-unquote, raqi or a, a, you know, sort of a permanent raqi. Bearing in mind, the same thing I said applies, that I don't believe the friend and family should be the only person doing the treatment. The key is self-treatment. The key is building yourself up to a level where you can read over yourself. And the friend and family is there for maybe when you, you know you can't. So what we'll often say to someone is a very good practice, and I really like doing this, is I will say to the person, uh, you start reading on yourself, bismillah, off they go. When they get to the stage that they can't read anymore, we'll take over. The shaitan goes from the throat, moves to another part of the body, and say, okay, keep on going, come on, read with me. Bismillah, read with me, keep going. And you're training the person to do ruqya upon themselves. At the end of the day, if everyone in this room started to become a, a raqi and do ruqya for people, I still don't think it would be enough. All you do is just find more cases. Because what you find is a lot of cases that you don't know were cases, and then you'll find your family members and cousins or whatever, and you'll end up with better, but not, not solving the problem. So what you want to do is to try and give the person the tools they need to read upon them, upon themselves as much as you can. Uh, the next part of the introduction, we consider this the minimum that a person needs to do in order to deal with the problem they have, whether it is jinn possession, magic, evil eye, or any other problem for which Rukia is recommended as a treatment. So we bear in mind that what you're about to hear is the minimum standard. Not enough for everybody. It is just a sensible minimum. Like many medicines, the doctor will start you on a standard dose. That standard dose may not be enough for your problem, but it's a standard dose that works for most people in most circumstances. At this point, we don't need to know whether it is magic, evil eye, jinn possession, psychological, psychiatric, normal, paranormal, and any other kind of normal that it could be. We don't need to know right now because we're gonna take it slow and steady. Yes, we can specialize, we can offer a specialized treatment for magic, but a lot of people jump the gun, they're straight into the ayat of Fir'aun and Musa and all of the other things. To be honest, in the basic sense, we need to just stick to the basic sunnah for Rukia, a basic treatment that works for most people. We also recommend 
that patients or their family and friends keep a record of how much they do each day as well as changes that happen in order to better aid the Raqi in advising the best form of treatment. Rukia is all about change. How do you know if Rukia is working? You don't know Rukia is working when the person's symptoms are getting better. To be honest, that might not happen. Rukia can sometimes be a 100% or zero, like on or off switch. The shaitan is either causing havoc or dead. It doesn't always go like a dimmer. It doesn't always go that it's getting better, 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 gone. Sometimes it's shaitan is throwing them around the room, person is cured, like a light switch, on and off. It doesn't always, sometimes it does work like a dimmer switch, sometimes they do get better, especially children, sometimes just get better and better and better all the way through the day or the session. But a lot of adults, you will not see them get better and better over time. It will just be, shaitan is causing a huge problem, shaitan is gone. Everything to nothing. Or, what is even more common, the problem will get worse before it gets better. Is it really getting worse? No. What is really happening here is that you are causing the shaitan so much pain that the shaitan is responding back by fighting. Now imagine again, I'm going to give you a horrible example. This is why I told, loads of reasons why I told no kids to come today, but I'm going to give you a horrible example. Imagine that you have decided to drown your enemy in a bathtub. Not a very nice thing. Pain, anything that he can do to cause you to stop reading. That is why you will often see a rookie, a patient, get worse in your eyes before they get better. Many medicines are like this as well. If you've ever seen a person go through chemotherapy, is it not true that when a person goes through chemotherapy for cancer, they get worse, quote-unquote, before they get better? Very true. And you, you see the person has cancer, but they're quite perfectly healthy. One very ill, they can't eat for themselves, they have you know, all these drips and lines in and whatever. They were perfectly healthy, but the doctor knew they have something that is eventually going to kill them. Rukia can be exactly the same. The jinn share a lot of similarities with cancer in some ways. You can see you know, a lot of the same, that the person may be outwardly perfectly healthy before they start the Rukia treatment. When you start the Qur'an treatment, you can see that the jinn is starting to react. Just like the cancer is reacting obviously to the, the poison and the, the radiation and radiotherapy and all the other things, the cancer is reacting to that. The jinn is, all, is getting, getting better, but there has to be a, a difficult time uh, at which the jinn is, is, uh, is causing a lot of outward suffering or sort of change, movement. That's what we want to see in a Rukia case. If a person is the same for like, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks of Rukia and nothing has changed, not any better, not any worse, not any reaction or lack of reaction, it's just, you know, maybe they just make a face and just, that's it. Or just one tear comes down and that's it. Then this is a sign that we need to make some change to the treatment. Generally, it might be a slow and steady case where you need to take a little bit of time. It might be a case where you need to up the treatment, or the person has a sin they're doing that is stopping things from working, or there is a ta'weez involved, or something like that. I'm not going to give you a time limit and say if you read on someone for three days and they don't react, it's not a jinn case. That's absolute rubbish. And whoever says that to you does not have experience of rukya to say, to say such a thing. 
many people will not react for several days before Rukia. And I'm not going to give you a time limit because it doesn't make any sense to give you a time limit. And it's only going to put an artificial barrier in your head that, right, if I've read on them for three days, how long do you read on a person until the symptoms go away? That simple. You read on them or they read on themselves until the symptoms go away. Could it be psychological? Of course it could. Could it be medical? Of course it could. And you're going to still advise him to go to the doctor. Because at the end of the day, the Prophet advised us to go and seek the medicine. So they're still going to go to the doctor and, and take their medical cure. And, you know, go and, and take their medicine. Could it be the person doesn't have gin possession and actually has cancer? Yeah, could be. Could the person maybe have hormonal imbalance or a chemical imbalance in the brain? Yeah, of course. But you're not going to stop doing rukya until the problem goes away. That is the, the like we say, qawlun fasl, you know, the, the final statement on the issue. Really. How long do you do rukya for until the problem goes away? Not three days or four days or 24 hours or one session or two sessions until Allah Azza wa Jal, Al-Fattah, Ar-Rahman, opens away a door. You would say to them that, you don't ever stop making dua. This is, this is what I'm saying to you now with Rukia. You don't stop doing Rukia because you didn't get a reaction after a day or after two days. Having said that, I would not advise a Raqi to be treating a person who has no obvious reaction for many, many, many Because this is when you are seeing that the jinn is reacting and you, you, you don't need to change, but the... They're, the person is changing frequently, worse, better. I've just started having nightmares. Nightmares have stopped. I've started, you know, vomiting. Stop vomiting. I've started shaking. Stop shaking. Started fainting. Stop fainting. And there is change. This is what we want to see in Rukia, in general. What we want people to do is because people don't remember. That's why in a hospital you have medical notes. You don't get the patient to say, yeah, you know, like he gave me 50 milligrams of this and 100 milligrams of that, and then he gave me these two tablets at 9 a.m. and at 9.05 a.m. someone came and took my blood pressure. You have medical notes. The reason you have medical notes is because people don't remember these things. You need to have a written record. So we also recommend that in Rukia, you have a written record from the patient. We don't recommend the Raqi keeps it because it opens a can of worms to... I don't know, in here, maybe we don't have it in Dubai, but it opens data protection, misuse of information, lots of laws. In the UK, you'd be breaking loads of laws uh, about how you hold people's information. We don't, we don't want the amana, even from an Islamic point of view, we don't want the amana of having people's personal details. But we want the patient, yani themselves, to just keep a brief diary of, today I read on myself 45 minutes. When I reached Qul A'udhu Bi Rabbil Falaq for the second time, I started to shake, the pain was in my left hand, I did this. Or someone else keeping just brief notes. It doesn't have to be, again, no Raqi really has the time to read pages and pages and pages. You know, one, two lines each session, you know. Pain moved into my leg, did this, did this, read this surah. This ayah seems to be having an effect. Again, we're not going to rely upon that effect, but just out of interest, it seems that Ayatul Kursi is having the most effect on this person. Make a little note of that. Keep it with them. Let them keep it for themselves. So then it gets you out of any, any issues or any amanat or anything like that. And they can show it to other people as well. 
and that will help you to tailor their treatment and, and maybe we will not be able to cover in this workshop all of the details of tailoring a treatment. I will give you, again, these are more specialized things. I will give you some of them, inshallah, how we treat children, how we treat, uh, you know, um, how we treat people who don't want to be treated and all these other things. Lots of things we can tweak. But right for now, let's give you a basic treatment that pretty much works for 70, 80% of people and needs very little external help. So there are some preconditions for treatment. And we always say to you guys, Ikhwani, Ruqya is da'wah. Ruqya is da'wah. Ruqya is the most amazing opportunity for you to call people to Islam, to the worship of Allah, to leaving the worship of the shaitan, to turning to Allah, to praying five times a day, to leaving innovation and innovators and turning to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, all of these things, you have the perfect opportunity in Ruqya. Any Ruqya session that doesn't begin with da'wah and nasiha is probably deficient. Every Ruqya session you begin should begin with some form of da'wah, islah, nasiha, whatever you want to call it. I mean, we say da'wah is for the non-Muslim, which might be true because non-Muslims may come, or Muslims who have left Islam because of their disbelief or worship of other than Allah. It may be islah in the sense of correcting a Muslim brother of yours who's fallen into some area of error, a sister who's fallen into some area of error. It might be simply a nasiha, just advice you're giving to the Muslims. What did the Prophet ﷺ say? Ad-deenu al-nasiha. The religion is giving advice. So for sure you want every Rukia session to contain, call it da'wah, call it islah, call it nasiha, whatever you want to call it, but to contain some form of educating the person and calling them to the worship of Allah, to leaving the worship of other than Allah, and to having istiqama, upright, uh, being an upright Muslim, praying, hijab, all of the rest. You need to have, there are some things you need to say and some things you should say. Let's just go through the preconditions and then you'll kind of see what you need to say. Number one, the patient directs all of their worship to Allah alone without giving a share of Allah's rights to anyone or anything else. Trusting in Allah completely and recognizing that there is no cure except from Allah. So the first thing you want to do is make sure that Tawheed is there and Shirk isn't. Because Shirk, making a partner with Allah, absolutely nullifies every single deed that you do. وَقَدِمْنَا إِلَى مَا عَمِلُوا مِنْ عَمَلٍ فَجَعَلْنَاهُ هَبَاءً مَنْثُورًا We came to what deeds they did and we made it into scattered dust. And Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَلَقَدْ أُوحِيَ إِلَيْكَ وَإِلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَابَلِكَ لَإِنْ أَشْرَكْتَ لَيَحْبَطَنَّ عَمَلُكَ وَلَتَكُونَنَّ مِنَ الْخَاسِرِينَ We revealed to you, O Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and to those who came before you, that if you had made a partner with Allah, we would have rendered all of your deeds worthless. We would have wiped out your deeds and you would be from the losers. And if that was said to our Messenger then we are more deserving of that. 
So absolutely first, number one, before everything else, get them to direct all of their worship to Allah alone. That might mean you need to ask some sensible questions. For example, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, maybe even to the extent of which masjid you go to, you know, sort of speakers you listen to. Not prejudging anyone, but trying to pick up on a clue. You know, have you ever been to someone who's given you a ta'weeth? Tell me the raqi you've been to in the past. Or I went to, you know, a Sayyid, Peer, Sufi, Saab, this and that, and he gave me this ta'weeth. Red flag. Shirk. And he straight away, you know this person is involved in shirk. Whether they realize it or not, this person has been involved or is involved in shirk. Red flag. Now you know before the ruqya, before anything else, you need to, to try and treat this problem. It may be that they might not be willing to listen until the ruqya is done. That's, you know, you'll have to bear that in mind. Sometimes you'll do the ruqya first, they'll see a positive change, and then they'll say, okay, now I understand you're telling me not to go to this guy. But in the beginning, asking a few simple questions, not in you know, Spanish Inquisition, not to categorize people and put them in boxes that this guy is not good <coughs> or anything like <coughs> that this guy is not good or anything like that, but just simply to be aware of who you're dealing with. Because what is the first rule in da'wah? One of the first rules in da'wah is what we benefit from the statement of Mu'adh radiallahu an or the statement of the Prophet to Mu'adh, inna You are going to a people of the book. Rule number one, know who you are speaking with. Are they completely connected to Allah? Not. Are they involved in any sort of shirk? Are they praying? Not praying? Is the lady, you know, you don't want to ask people about their sins, but just to get an idea, you know, she might come in hijab. She might not wear hijab normally. You say, if you don't mind, may I ask you, uh, you know, do you cover? Normally, outside of, you know, during, during you know, normal, normal day? She says, of course I do, okay, no problem. If she says to you, no, or I would rather not talk about that or something like that, no problem, but you have an idea, you build up a case study and you start to think in your mind, right, I'm dealing with someone involved in shirk, someone involved in bid'ah, innovation, someone involved in a sin, maybe a major sin, like... The hijab issue, not praying, whatever. I'm dealing with someone in this area or this area. And then you tailor your nasiha and your da'wah to them. Again, you may not give it the first time. First time, maybe just plain rukia because you feel they won't listen to you. Maybe second time around, you say, look, I really need to talk to you about some things. Well, you know, you, you have your hikmah, you have your wisdom, you do it the way you think. But precondition for treatment is the person has to direct all of their worship to Allah alone without giving a share, trusting in Allah completely and recognizing there is no cure except from Allah. The last part, recognizing that there is no cure except from Allah is extremely important, okay? So we want people to disconnect themselves from you as a Raqi. We want people to stop believing that Muhammad Tim will solve my problem and start believing that Allah will solve my problem. You need to hammer that point home every Rukia session or almost every Rukia session. You need to hammer home the point that the cure is only from Allah. La amliku li nafsi darran wa la rashada. I don't 
own for myself any ability to harm or benefit. I don't own for, I don't have for you any benefit to harm you or to benefit you. Many times this is repeated, similar ayat in the Quran. I don't have any ability to benefit you or harm you. The cure is from Allah. Seek it from Allah, don't seek it from me. If Allah makes me a reason for you to be cured, Alhamdulillahi awwalan wa akhirah. All praises to Allah in the beginning and the end. If Allah Azza wa Jal makes somebody else the reason for you to be cured, Alhamdulillah. You know, again, some people who do ruqya have this really horrible sort of exclusivity clauses and things like that, you know. Don't go to anybody else. And I know why they do it. They do it because a lot of people give wrong information and whatever. But you know, you only need to see me and don't read on yourself and don't do this and don't do that. Only the cure is from Allah. The cure is not from any person on this earth. It is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only. You make sure you hammer that point home. That the patient is strict in following the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam to the best of their ability and turns away from anything which opposes it, including forms of dhikr and protection that were not sanctioned by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam or practiced by his companions radiallahu anhum wa ardahum. Again, sensible questions, sort of, what are you doing right now? Oh, I'm doing full dhikr. Okay, you give me an example of the dhikr that you are doing. Yeah, in the morning, I say, uh, I read Surah Yasin five times. And then I read the last, you know, this thing, or I read that thing, and then I read this Allah who, 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 a thousand times before I go to bed. Okay. Can I suggest to you what would be better than that? The Prophet ﷺ said, for example, whoever reads the Aman al Rasul, the last two ayahs of Surah Al Baqarah, sufficed against everything Al Falaq, Al Nas, Ayat Al Kursi, after every salah, there's nothing between them and Jannah except for death. All of these different areas of protection. Can I suggest maybe we should, you know, we can, we can drop the Allahu and replace it with La ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika la. Maybe we can stop, you know, you can read Surah Yasin, but maybe just, you know, not the five times fixed every day. Maybe, you know, mix it up, read Surah Yasin, read As-Safat, read, uh, you know, read Al-Falaq, Al-Nas, Ayat Al-Kursi, Al-Fatiha. And, you know, you're, you're trying to direct them towards the Sunnah of the Prophet Because as we said, Man amila amalan laysa alayhi amruna if you're not doing your action in accordance with the sunnah, it's not going to work. That the patient is not in possession of a ta'weez, either on their person or having taken one before, as much as you can. Bring the topic up to begin with. I'll admit, I have in the past said to people, I will not read on you unless you're willing to give me the ta'weez. So you tell me, if you want me to help, ta'weez. If you're not going to give me the ta'weez, then I'm sorry, I'm not going to help. I'm, I might say that to some people and not to others. Some people, if I think he's going to say, fine, I'll go to my sheikh, he will read. And, you know, I think he's going to stay in the shirk and, and the innovation, then I would probably say I will read on you and just encourage him. But if I think the person is quite desperate and quite like in a state where they, they don't have anyone else to go to and they're wearing a ta'weez, I would have no hesitation in saying, I am not reading a single ayah until you give me that ta'weez. 
I'm not saying I'm really horrible like that all the time, but like from, I have done it before. I've done it before. You know, one family, she said, you know, my mom, she has a ta'weed, but she's not willing to, to, to give it to you. She says, no, I can't give it. I said, simple then, I'm not doing any ruqya. I'm sorry, this is my rule, this is my condition. The ruqya, ta'weed. Okay, there you go. Alhamdulillah, maybe you have a share of taking shirk from a person's neck. Like the Prophet ﷺ, you did himself, and like the Prophet ﷺ sent Ali ibn Abi Talib and others from the companions anhum, that he sent them to go and to cut the ta'weez from the necks of the camels. And if you find any camel with a ta'weez around its neck, cut it off. This is what the Prophet ﷺ sent some of the companions to do anhum. You should be proud to follow in their, in their footsteps. You know, to, to push people and to encourage people, get rid of the ta'weez. And say, look, I'll open it in front of you. If it is, you know, la ilaha illallah, I'll apologize to you. You know, even though it's not right, but I will, I will you know, I'll, I will, I'll apologize to you. You won't, inshallah, have to apologize, trust me. You'll open up, Iblis, 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 Aghithni, Ya Ali, Ya Hussein, Ya Jibreel, Ya this, Ya that, you'll see nothing else. Names of Shaitan, Stars of Babylon, if you guys have watched the videos, you will see Stars of Babylon, all of these Qahatatil and all of these names, Ajib names, and Ya Badduh and Ya Qadduh and all of these Ajib Shaitani names, you'll see Iblis, you'll see seeking help from the angels, you'll see symbols, you'll see faces of Shaitan, all sorts of shirk and evil. From the Ayatul Kursi, they will tell you. Ayatul Kursi, Wallahi, Wallahi Lazim. Ayatul Kursi. Open it up. Ya Iblis, Aghithni, 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 Iblis, 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 Iblis. Then they will say, no, 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 no. This Iblis is to trap Iblis. See, <laughs> all I'm looking at is a paper, and I, I might show you it later on. I've got photos of them, and I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'll show you later on. That you open a paper, and the only thing on the paper is Iblis, 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 Iblis. And they always write it the same way. They write the scene like a, like a wavy line, like a snake. Yeah? So they write like Iblis, and then they have a long, like, wavy, wavy line. Iblis, Iblis, Iblis. And usually you get nine of them on the page, or 15 of them on the page, or whatever. No, no, this is to trap Iblis. What can you say to that? Say, look, every one of the scholars of Islam agrees it is not permissible for you to walk with Iblis around your neck, whether it is to trap the shaitan or not to trap the shaitan. Give me the paper. Get rid of it. So, get rid of the ta'weez. There is an article on the blog, how to dispose of ta'weez. I think it is this one here. How do I destroy a ta'weez? I'm not going to go through it now because we're going to run out of time. You can have a read through it. I did mention it in some of the other videos as well. Where are we at? That the patient's house is to the best of their ability free of pictures and photographs of animate objects as well as other things that attract the shaitan. I don't like doing house visits because it's just time consuming. But it sometimes when I have a case that isn't going anywhere, uh, and is a bit stuck in the mud, I'll say, I might come and see you at home. You walk in, and it's just, 
I mean, honestly, it, I've described it before. It is honestly, wallah, without a word of a lie, it is like writing ahlan wa sahlan bis shaytan on the front of your house. Welcome to the shaytan. You go inside, music, TV, Indian films, this and that and the other. The house is full. Pictures on the wall. This is my daughter without hijab when she graduated from university. This is her when she got married. This is her all along the wall. And you think, subhanallah. And you have invited the shaytan into your home. And then complained when he came to stay. This is not going to work. Advise them from the beginning. And if you feel they're not taking the advice, you can possibly you know, push, it, push him on it a little bit. That the home gets rid of everything that is pleasing to the shaytan. Anything that is pleasing to the shaytan. Now, a person may say, Muhammadin, what you said is fine, but I don't control my house. The Indian films belong to my dad. The picture on the wall belongs to my mom. I can't do anything about it. We say to them, Fear Allah as much as you can. As much as you can. If you only clear your room, and you can't do anything else but hate it in your heart, then I hope and pray to Allah that your room will be protected. I can't promise you, but I hope and pray that the angels will enter your room and nowhere else. Because inshallah, you're doing the best you can in the circumstances. Yes, we don't always have practicing parents and family members in the same house, but do your best. And that means approaching them, telling them, please look, can we, you know, if we can't get rid of the TV, can we at least switch Quran channel on? Can we at least put, uh, you know, the, this, uh, like uh, from the Haram in Makkah where they just show the Quran and Medina where they just show the Quran and the, the Hadith and stuff like that. Can we just, you know, can we do that instead? Can we, you know, get rid of the music collection? Just put it maybe in the cupboard. Just slowly encourage them and we can put, you know, Quran on instead. SubhanAllah, it's very important because if your fortress is overrun by your enemy, then how do you think you're going to be able to fight that enemy? If they're inside of your own fortress, your house should be a fortress. Should be a hisn, like hisn al-Muslim. A fortress. A place where the enemy can't get in. Your enemy's stuck, they can't get in. And they feel very uncomfortable when they're there. If you are making your house comfortable for the shaitan, then the danger is the shaitan is not going to go. And even worse, you're going to be giving the shaitan a nice place to eat, a nice place to rest. That means you're going to have to get all the members of the household as much as you can involved. For example, you know, bismillah when you enter the house, you know, saying dua before you go to the bathroom, uh, making sure people stay in a state of wudu, you know, making sure the house is in a general, is in a good way. People are praying in the house, ladies are praying in the house, men are praying their sunnah prayers in the house. The house is a place of Islam, a place of learning, a place beloved to Allah. If it's beloved to Allah, that means the angels will be there. If the angels are there, then the shaitan are not. Pictures, I don't really want to get into the ikhtilaf, just take them out. Because at the end of the day, if someone's saying that I'm dying from, from an affliction of sihr, then really we don't want to be sit here talking about ikhtilaf, about whether you can keep them in the cupboard or not, and whether or not you know, like it's okay if they're inside of a photo album. If you really want to be cured, da'ma yaribuk ila ma la yaribuk. Li ayat and these ahadith. 
So again, I'm not saying I would refuse to read on someone. I would probably use it as a dawah opportunity and say, look, I'll read on you, but look, you've got to start praying. You've got to start praying. You've got to, again, distinguish between the person who's too lazy, who's got some dunya, a person who is maybe the jinn are stopping them from praying. Not an excuse, but they, they feel as though the jinn are stopping them from praying. You have to have some hikmah. You can't just say, right, you're not praying, khalas. Ukhruj, go out. But you need to deal with the issue. Don't let the issue go away. And that the patient watches the 10-part Rukia course. I put that in because I want people to get as much knowledge about this Rukia as possible. Okay. Daily, that which you do. When must they do the adhkar? Every single morning after Fajr. Every single afternoon after Asr. And I've kind of tentatively come to the conclusion that after Asr is the right time, inshallah every single afternoon after Asr and every single night before going to bed as well as any other circumstance and article which I'll briefly take you through which I've called simple things to protect yourself from the shaitan. This article came about because of a meeting with our Sheikh Adil ibn Tahir al-Muqbil hafizahullah ta'ala Sheikh is a uh, like they say, a bahar, you know, a sea when it comes to issues of magic and, and ruqya, subhanAllah. One of the most knowledgeable people that I have ever met. In this field. One of the things that the Shaykh changed with regard to what I used to do and he advised me on is that I used to give people Hisnul Muslim, all of the Adkarul Sabah, all of the Adkarul Masa, the Adkar before Naum sleep, the adhkar, after every salah, uh, you know, the adhkar in every circumstance. And you know what people used to do? Not do them. The reality is people represent a really simple thing that everyone can do every day and nobody has to miss it even one day. And inshallah, from then on, the person can build upon it. Uh, the sheikh basically said there are many things a person can do but we want to give people something that is both easy and effective. This list is not intended to be comprehensive. It's intended to be easy for everyone with things that require the most, or that give the most comprehensive protection, bi'ithnillah. So what have we told people to do? Bismillah. When have we told them to say bismillah? When you enter the house, because the dua for entering the house is weak. There is no, as far as I'm aware, there is no authentic dua for entering the house. This Bismillahi walajna wa Bismillahi kharajna to the best of my knowledge is a, is a, weak, a, a weak hadith. What is authentic is Bismillah and Salam. Bismillah. And again, you know, maybe someone else can study the hadith and, and get back to us. As far as I recall, the hadith is ta'if. So what we have is Bismillah and Salamu alaykum. You know, when you enter in the house, Bismillah before you eat. Bear in mind it's not Bismillahi Rahman Rahim. Uh, there's no, it's not known the Prophet said Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. He said Bismillah. Number two, the last three surahs of the Quran. When are you going to read those? You're going to read them after Fajr and after Asr, separate to anything else you read. Okay, that's not like, you know, you might read once one time after every prayer, but this is separate. This is three times each. <coughs> What I usually do is one time, two times, three times, all the way through, like 
ikhlas falak nas, ikhlas falak nas, ikhlas falak nas, but however you want. After Fajr, in a block, and after Asr, in a block. <coughs> Number three, Ayatul Kursi. When are you going to read Ayatul Kursi? After each obligatory prayer, and before you go to sleep. Number four, the dua for entering the toilet. Bismillah, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-khubuthi wal-khaba'ith. Number five, the dua for leaving the house. Bismillah, tawakkaltu ala Allah. Wala hawla wala quwwata illa billah. When are you going to read this one? Just as you're leaving the house. Number six. The du'a for setting foot in a new place. A'udhu bi kalimatillahi tammati min sharri ma khalaq. Whenever you set foot in a new place, such as when getting out of your car, you're in a new area, you've, you know, when entering someone's house, when sitting down outside, you know, you're just like in a, a new place, you know, you're in somewhere that's unfamiliar to you, so you read A'udhu bi kalimatillahi tammati min sharri ma khalaq. Number seven. Bismillah alladhi la yadurru ma'a ismihi shay'un fil ardi wa la fis sama'i wa huwa as-sami'ul alim Three times after fajr three times after asr An la ilaha illa Allah wahdahu la sharika la lahul mulku wa lahul hamdu yuhyi wa yumitu wa huwa ala kulli shay'in qadir Ten times after Fajr and ten times after Maghrib. This one is after Maghrib as far as I am aware. The hadith in this mentions Salatul Maghrib. And Allah knows best. A person may say, what I know is you read it a hundred times. You read, don't, these all exist, don't worry. You haven't got it wrong. This is just the shortest, most simple way of getting the maximum protection with minimum effort. Because a lot of people will not do the full adhkar. So at least we get them just quickly say, Bismillah, and then, you know, simple, you know, a couple of simple things, inshallah. How does each one protect you? When you say Bismillah before, ideally we would like them to do that twice a day or three times a day, but at least 45 minutes each day. So this is the Rukia. I've told you how Rukia is performed in other videos, but we'll just revise. Uh, again, if you look on notesmuhammadtim.com, there's a long discussion of, in the Quran as a cure, there's a long discussion of different ways of doing Rukia. I think we have 10 or 9 different ways in texts for the how in the Quran. Okay, this is number one. Number two, reading and blowing with dry air. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Just dry air I don't You can see that, yeah? Into the microphone Just dry air Number three Reading and blowing with spit Ar-Rahmanir-Rahim Yeah, you can hear it's, There's some spittle coming out there this is from the Sunnah. Don't knock it. 
reading into the hands and wiping over the body without blowing. Maliki Yawmiddin. Yeah, wiping over the body without blowing. Okay. Reading and placing the hand on the place of pain. So let's say I've got right now stomach pain. My hand is on the place of the pain. Very, very good, especially obviously only with the mahram because we don't, we don't have the touching between uh, non-mahram. But very, very, very effective method of ruqya. That you see the jinn will move around in the body. You know, the person's like, it's in my head and my head is just killing. Just put your hand on the head and read. Just keep reading and reading. Or read into your hand and put it on the head. Or, as we're going to come to another one, reading and placing, uh, sorry, reading and blowing and wiping the hand. Yeah? So that one is reading and blowing and wiping. Reading and putting spittle on the finger, touching the earth and touching the sick person. Some of the scholars said this is specific to the earth of Medina, but the correct opinion is that any earth can be used. So this is, um, so for example, where, where, where are we up to? Spit on your finger, okay? And then you touch the earth and you touch the person who is sick. This is mentioned in some of the ahadith. And the scholars who mentioned it, they, some of them said it's only for Medina. And some of them said that it is, uh, it's general. And An-Nawawi and Ibn Al-Qayyim said that it is general. Uh, but when you, there is a dua, you say with the, uh, I forgot the dua off the top of my head, with the spittle of one of us and the earth of, of and our land, we ask Allah to cure the sick one along those lines, inshallah. It's all mentioned in here, inshallah. Uh, number eight, salt in water while reading over the per person and then putting water on the place of pain. In this hadith, it's not mentioned the Prophet ﷺ read over the water specifically. We'll come to that. Don't worry, I'm, I'm getting there, guys. Yeah, uh, We'll come there. But it's mentioned that he asked for salt in water and he read over the place of pain and he put the salt water onto the place. I think this was for a scorpion sting, if I remember rightly, or a snake wound, it's all, in the, it's all in the notes. And number nine, reading over water, and there is a long ikhtilaf over reading over water, which I have answered on, uh, I have answered on my website, which I will show you when I've answered, inshallah. My opinion is, on balance, reading over water is permissible, inshallah, which is that you take some water, to obviously open it up, and then you would read, and blow into the water. This is a matter of ikhtilaf. I won't deny that there are some of the scholars, our Sheikh, Sheikh Al-Albani, Rahmatullahi Alayhi, used to consider it to be impermissible. Some of the scholars of Islam followed him in that. Some of them held it to be permissible, but as I understand from the evidence I've given, and we've, I've got a long sort of discussion on the topic, that the Rajih and what our Sheikh Abdul Mahsin Abbad, Hafizahullah Ta'ala, and our Sheikh Salih Al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah, 
and the Lajna al-Da'ima in Saudi Arabia held the, the permissibility of doing so. And I, that, is what I am, that is what I am confident with in myself, inshallah. Uh, that is what I am confident with in myself. So again, uh, if you wish to avoid doing so because you hold the opinion that it's not from the Sunnah, uh, no doubt the Ahadith have weakness in it, no doubt. But we think that the Ahadith together in addition to the fact that it is within the hadith, show me your ruqya and what, whatever did not contain shirk, in addition to the fact that it was accepted by the overwhelming majority of the tabi'een and those who followed them, we think that on balance, the, the, the correct opinion is that you can read upon, upon water and by extension upon, upon olive oil. Uh, our Sheikh Ali bin Ghazi mentioned this in number nine because he believes the hadith are fair that the Prophet ﷺ read on water. I think that on balance, I think the hadith is probably da'if. Uh, I think as Sheikh Abdul Muhsin said to us that the hadith is fair. I don't know, I think on balance the hadith is probably weak. But I think that on balance of principles, rules, ijma, and you know, action of the companion, and so on and so forth, I think that on balance, I think we can say that it is, inshallah, permissible to do. Uh, even though the hadith is, is questionable, did the Prophet himself read Quran over water? Some of the scholars like uh, Sheikh bin Baz, uh, Sheikh Abdul Muhsin, uh, and others, they said he did read over water, or they indicated that the Prophet ﷺ did so. Some of them said the hadith has a weakness in it, and Allah knows best, but it seems to me that the, you know, the, the on balance of all of the evidence together, that it is permissible to read over the water. Uh, note that methods which involve touching are not suitable for contact between men and women who are not mahram. The Prophet ﷺ said, seek the cure, and the cure has not been put for you in the haram, as he said How can a person go to the haram in Rukia, believing that this will bring them a cure? The Prophet ﷺ said that for an iron nail to be driven through your head is better for you than for you to touch a woman who is not a mahram for you or as he said sallallahu alayhi wasallam words to those effect if that is the case how after that can a person touch a woman who is not his mahram or she he is not a mahram for her i don't think that can be done some people gave the evidence of a doctor in a medical emergency but we say ikhwani this is qiyas ma'al fariq this is analogy but the two are not the same First of all, there is a method of ruqya that works without needing to touch. See methods number one, two, and three. Reading alone, reading and blowing with dry air, reading and blowing with spittle, and method nine, reading on water. That's four methods out of the nine methods that don't require any touching at all. So therefore, there is no need for us to say that it's an emergency, I have to have my hands on her, when in reality there are four methods authentically mentioned in the sunnah, or three, which indicate that ruqya can be done without touching. The evidence is also in this, in this uh, Quran as a cure. So my sincere advice in all honesty is, don't, don't go there. Second reason there's a difference is, first of all, there's no, there's no uh, need to touch. Secondly, a medical emergency is an emergency. You know, the person is collapsed on the floor. You know, I'll be honest, if a lady collapsed on the floor and nobody else is there that can pick her up and I have to pick her up, I'll pick her up. You know, at the end of the day, this is an emergency. But that's not the same as a day-for-day-by-day day ruqya practice. 
There are examples where I have felt necessary to take hold of a woman in Rukia, but very limited. One, she went for a kitchen knife, so that was either her or me. <laughs> so, Annie, that was one thing. Mental note, yeah? Just make sure the Rukia area is safe, yeah? I never worry about the jinn picking up the knife, but yani, the, the person, yani, I'll be honest, the danger is not to the Raqi. The greatest danger of a person who is suffering from Rukia is themselves. Most of them would attempt suicide before murder. Most of them. So you're not really in any great danger as a Raqi. I've seen people get blades, knives, etc. Generally, they don't go for me. Very rarely they go for me. My first Rukia case, one, one went for me, but not with a knife. Um, that happens sometimes, you know, I was just reading on him and he was a bit calm, then his legs started to shake, just his, his, his thigh started to shake a little bit, and then he just went, just stood up and just went for me, you know, like, uh, so, and that doesn't happen very often, and I've got a, a blog post on how to deal with that as well. That doesn't happen very often, um, but what does happen is they'll go for themselves. So before they start to strangle you, they'll put their hands around their own throat, and because the jinn is, is, is controlling the muscle, they will be squeezing their own throat and they will literally try to choke themselves to death, punching themselves in the head. I remember one time I gra grabbed hold of a lady. She was with her mahram, uh, but she was punching herself in the head, and the mahram was not able to, to hold her arm. You know, and I, I thought she was really gonna do herself some damage, so we, you know, out, obviously try not to touch the hand, etc. just grab hold of her arm. Um, I must admit, whenever my simple principle is, whenever there is an incident that involves touching a lady, we always sit down afterwards with uh, the rookie partner and ask, did I do the right thing? Did I jump the gun? And sometimes my brother Basak, Allah Father, who is my rookie partner, will say to me, you jumped the gun, you were too quick, you could have held off, uh, I thought she was okay, and we review that between each other, because we consider that to be a very serious thing. We don't consider it to be a light thing to take a decision to touch a woman who's not your mahram. We consider that to be very serious. If it's done, it should only be done in the most serious of cases, but yeah, if I think she's gonna go for herself, if I think she's gonna stab me, or if I think she's gonna, you know, um, you know, sit her own wrists or something like that, then yeah, I would, grab, I would grab hold of her. If she collapsed in the road and there's nobody else there that could pick her up, or that, you know, one time we had a, a conference like this, one of the girls collapsed, the ladies tried to pick her, but they couldn't pick her, you know, in the end, the men had to just put something around, like, so they're not touching and just pick her up, because the ladies couldn't manage to pick this, this girl up and, and take her, you know. We tried whatever we could, we couldn't manage. These are exceptions to the rule. But as a, a general rule, any Raqi who the first thing he does is plonk his hand on the sister, for me, you know, that's not right. And that shouldn't be done. So those are your methods of Rukia. Uh, here we go, where are we up to? Uh, 45 minutes a day, ideally twice to three times a day. The intention of Rukia. No Rukia audio at this point. We'll talk about that. This must comprise of at least Al-Fatiha. Why? Because Al-Fatiha is the most common or second most common surah used by the Prophet Sallallahu and the Sahaba in treating all kinds of Rukia cases. Al-Fatiha. Abu Sa'id Al-Khudri. Al-Fatiha seven times. Al-Fatiha three times. All of these are you know, standard, standard Rukia that was approved and done by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Ayatul Kursi, the greatest ayah in the Quran. Al-Ikhlas, Al-Falaq, and Al-Nas. 
repeated to fill the time. How you repeat it, when you repeat it, is up to you. Did I say to you that you can't recite the ayat of Sihr? No. Did I say to you that you can't recite, you know, As-Safat or Yasin or Al-Jinn or something like that? No, you can recite. But don't go away from these basic ones. What I would recommend is if you recite Yasin, As-Safat, Al-Jinn, you recite them outside of the 45-minute time slot. So that that 45 minutes is guaranteed to be the most effective and the most or the closest to the sunnah that is possibly mentioned. After that, read Yaseen al-Safat al-Anbiya, whatever you like. You know, mashallah, I like reading Surah al-Anbiya sometimes. I like reading Surah al-Mu'minun. Just, it reminds me of things. I don't, it's not necessarily in Ruqya, but it just reminds me of the need of Allah and turning to Allah and that Allah cures and, you know, many other things. I like, you know, reading uh, backwards, you know, different, different ayat of the Quran, uh, you know, from different parts, uh, Different, different surahs, different elements of the Qur'an. But try to keep that first 45 minutes in the day limited to Al-Fatiha, Ayatul Kursi, Al-Ikhlas, Al-Falaq and Al-Nas. And if you wish to add Al-Kafirun, I should really add Al-Kafirun on there because Al-Kafirun is also mentioned in the Sunnah as well. Repeat it to fill the time. If the person is unable to read over themselves, then you've got to get one of the family members to just step in at that point and read over them, but you, you heard what I said about pushing the boundary and so on and so forth. If there is no other choice, they can use Rukia audio or they can use Rukia audio as a complement to physical recitation. I should be absolutely clear, I do not believe that Rukia audio is Rukia. Rukia audio is the recording of someone doing Rukia or Skype Rukia or phone Rukia or anything else. I don't believe it is Rukia because the asal, the fundamental principle of Rukia is Rukia is on the breath. Do I believe it has a role to play in Rukia? Yes. Because at the end of the day, you're reading and you're choking. Okay, you can't read anymore. One strategy is Rukia audio. You read over yourself. When you can't read anymore, you put the audio on. When you recover yourself a bit, you start reading again. So you read alongside the audio if you, if you become paralyzed. You read alongside the audio, the audio is playing your reading with the audio. Then when you can't read anymore, the audio is still, is still playing. I prefer in-ear headphones, or even if you want to go really, you know, do something really different. Uh, you also get those ones that put a vibration of the sound through the skin. Like they're like a little, little speakers and they have like little sticky feet on the bottom. And when you put them, they actually make the whole body resonates with the Rukia. I don't think there's any harm in doing things like that, inshallah. I, mean, I don't think, this is not the majority, okay? This is not what we do in the day in, day out. Do I think there's any harm in putting any headphone, headphones in or putting big earmuffs over so that they can only hear the ruqya? Allah, I don't think there's any harm in it. I don't think it comes under bid'ah. This is a, you know, simply, a, you know, an, an additional method. You know, I, I know some people who, for example, instead of touching the place of the pain, they use a sports massager. You may have seen sports massager, like a little machine that like vibrates very quickly. And what it does, it basically does this. Like this, yeah? It hits the person very hard, but it's very gentle in the sense that you can't beat the gin, yeah? It doesn't work, it's illegal. You're gonna end up in jail, and you'll end up in court saying, yeah, yeah, there was a gin, honestly, that's why I, I beat this person to death. You know, it's not going to work. But what does work is targeted massage. What does work is targeted massage. So you feel the jinn is in the arm, just 
grab hold of it and just massage the area while you're reciting that you feel the jinn is in. That will give enough pain to the jinn to cause a problem and no pain to the person if you get it wrong. What's the problem with hitting? Someone says to me, Ibn Taymiyyah used to beat, Imam Ahmad used to hit, why can't we do it? To be honest, it's mostly for two reasons, or three. Number one, it's illegal. And you will end up going to jail and probably end up getting rookie stopped in the whole country as a result of you know, killing somebody through beating them. Number two, if you get the timing wrong, when you hit somebody, you can cause them serious, serious damage. And the jinn move very fast. You heard the story of Suleiman and bring the, you know, I will bring you the, the, the Ifrit said, I will bring you the throne before you stand from your place. You don't want to be chasing an Ifrit around the room, throwing punches, because if you miss, you will cause that person some serious pain. And I've seen it happen. Big, you know, Raqi comes, strong guy, he's used to hitting, slap across the arm, the jinn moves out the way, the person ends up with a big bruise, doesn't come back again, it's not good for Rukia, it's not good for the person, it's not good for you. What does work is targeted massage. Massage doesn't hurt anybody. Just grab the area and massage it. If you are on you know, target, then you'll hurt the jinn and you'll cause the jinn physical discomfort. If you are off target, you won't hurt anybody. The person will not feel like they've been hurt. What also works on a more extreme example is a sports massager, which basically does that. But it does it in a, in a gentle enough way that it doesn't hurt the person. And you can, you, know, you can put that on the person. And again, I don't, I don't use any of these things. You don't see me carrying around you know, speakers that are like wired to the person's brain or, you know, or like little sports massager. But I don't see the harm in doing it. I don't think there's any, any big harm in doing it. The key thing is, yes, you physically intimidate the jinn, but you don't do it in a way that could hurt the person, especially when you're starting off. You know, yeah, if my rookie partner, I'll be honest, right? My rookie partner gets... Uh, a, a little affliction, yeah, you know, I, I'll beat him a couple of times, you know, that's it, but that's like, you know, between friends, that's not a big deal, you know, like, if he sees there's a gin in my, you know, attached itself to my arm, he'll probably, you know, give me a good right hook, but at the end of the day, that's someone who knows what they're doing in a situation where there's no real, you know, danger coming out of it. What we don't want to hear is, you know, people who are just starting off in Rukia, you don't need to do it in the first place. I've not found hitting any better than targeted massage. Honestly, targeted massage or, you know, like the, the, the gentle tapping. The jinn move too quickly, and I, I, I don't throw punches that quickly. I've not found, like, a way to, you know, maybe, I don't know, a professional boxer or something might be able to throw a punch quick enough to catch one of them. But also, if he misses, he's likely to, you know, probably kill the person. So you have to be sensible, yeah? Chasing the jinn is a very beneficial way of doing rukia. Meaning, jinn's in the hand, just get hold of the hand. You know, jinn's in the finger, classic thing. Finger comes like this. Arm is coming like this, person's bending over. Just get hold of the finger. You don't have to cut off the blood supply. And just, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. The finger. Okay, jinn's moved into the arm. Get hold of the arm. Start to massage the area where it's in. You know, just, just put a bit of pressure on. It's not hurting the person, it's just hurting the jinn. Then again, you know, it says it's in the neck, right? You know, just put your hand on the neck, just put a bit of pressure there, rub it around, you know, catch hold of the gin there, like sort of where it's not causing any problem. Just give it a little, a little, little tap, little, you know, gentle massage, you know, different techniques, whatever you guys know, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, just don't hurt the person and don't do anything illegal because at the end of the day, 
you will end up not just causing for yourself a problem, but even looking an entire country can be closed. Because if a non-Muslim or, you know, like doesn't understand whatever, you know, they could close it down in the whole country and say it's banned. So that's a big problem. Um, the patient must repent, and I'm going really quickly now, to Allah frequently throughout the day and must be active in making dua, including dua relating to ruqya and sickness. I recommend the dua of Ayyub and the dua of Yunus and the lecture I have on dua, the dua of Ayyub. Ayyub made this dua from Surah Al-Anbiya and Allah Azza We answered him. Uh, we gave him his family back. We cured him. We gave him his family back. Uh, and, and an equal like them. Uh, and Allah Azza wa said with regard to Yunus when he called out, La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min al-dhalimeen. Allah Azza wa Jalla said, Fastajabana lah. Wa najaynahu min al-ghammi wa kathalika nunji al-mu'mineen. We answered him and we saved him from his distress. And in this way, we will save every believer. So Allah Azza wa Jalla promised to save every believer who makes the dua of Yunus. And Allah promised through a hadith from the Prophet about the dua of Ayyub. So at the end of the day, use those duas, other duas for sickness. Don't forget to use dua in ruqya. So ask Allah, oh Allah, cure them. For example, the dua, Saqama. Likewise, the dua, for example, Bismillahi And likewise, the duas, for example, like saying, means I seek refuge with Allah for you instead of A'udhu. If you want to say A'udhu for someone else, you say, Any dua that starts with A'udhu. So, a'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. U'idhu ka for a man and ki for a woman means I seek Allah's refuge for, on your behalf, for you from the shaitanir rajeem. Things like this. Uh, and very, very quickly, patient must read Surah Al Baqarah no less than once every three days. That's twice a week. It would be preferable if Al Baqarah was integrated into daily ruqya and even better if it's once or twice a day. Sheikh Ali bin Ghazi al my Sheikh, Hafizahullah, who taught me Rukia, he gets all his patients to do Al-Baqarah twice a day. Sometimes three times. All the way through. That's probably why he says he's never seen a case take longer than seven days. Al-Baqarah all the way through. Al-Baqarah, akhthuha baraka, wa tarkuha hasra, wa la yastati'uha al-batala, aw kama qala sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Reading it is baraka, leaving it is lost, the magicians are unable to touch it. So, Integrate Al-Baqarah into your Ruqya as a minimum standard twice a week. As a minimum standard twice a week. Focusing on the area of the home where you feel the worst problem is. If there's a room or they're having sleeping problems, a bedroom or whatever. Just focus it there twice a week. However, if you can do it once or twice a day, this is much, much better. If no one's available, someone else can come and read audio recitation. But I don't believe the audio recitation is sufficient if there are people who can recite. Monthly, the seven-day program, which we'll talk about after the break. And finally, on a regular basis, the person should have cupping done. In my opinion, cupping is always best done towards the end of 
or it's most effective towards the end or when there is about to be a change in the, in the, uh, the Rokia case because what it does is it tends to kind of get rid of the last bit that's hanging in there and just pull the shaitan or, or just cause a problem for the shaitan. Uh, however, I recommend cupping to be done throughout the treatment. Uh, advise the practitioner of the problem. Don't say to the practitioner, I'm fine and healthy, and then it turns out you start screaming and, and shouting and throwing things when the hijama is done. Tell them, I have a problem with relating to, which I'm treating with Rukia. This is my problem. It's medical. It's psychological. I don't know what it is. It might be magic, whatever. And they will cup you in the places that are advised by the experts as well as the places where they feel the pain is concentrated. In all of this, I haven't given you any guidelines because I recommend you refer to the cupping practitioner. I don't like to, to kind of get on their turf and start saying cup on the middle of the back, cup on the top of the head, cup on the back of the ear, because at the end of the day, I'm kind of getting into their area. If you've got a good cupping practitioner, they should know where to cup anyway. Follow their instructions about what to eat, what not to eat, when to do it, what days to do it on, what time of the day to do it on, do's and don'ts, you follow their instructions, inshallah, is better. Yes, if you don't have instructions from anyone, I can give you some advice, but in general, I recommend with cupping, you stick to the experts. That's more than enough for now, inshallah ta'ala. We still have to continue going through that where to start document, because we're only on point number three, uh, and then we can talk about the obstacles and how to overcome them, and that will be at 2 o'clock. Ikhwani, we are planning to start at 2 o'clock on the dot. So please come by quarter to 2, 10 to 2, be, si be seated down, because a lot of people came late. We're planning to start on the dot, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan.
إذا ما قالني ربي أما استحييت تعصيني وتخفي الذنب عن خلقي وبالعصيان تأتيني فكيف أجيب يا ويحي ومن ذا سوف يحميني أسلي النفس بالآمال من حين إلى حين وأنسى ما وراء الموت ماذا بعد تكفيني كأني قد ضمنت العيش ليس الموت يأتيني وجاءت سكرة الموت الشديدة من سيحميني ألم أسمع بيوم الحشر يوم الجمع والدين ألم أسمع منادي الموت يدعوني يناديني فيا رباه عبد تائب من ذا سيأويني سوى رب غفور واسع للحق يهديني أتيت إليك فارحمني وثقل في موازيني وخفف في جزائي أنت أرجى من يجازيني إذا ما قال أجيب يا ويحي ومن ذا سوف يحميني أسلي النفس بالآمال من حين إلى حين وأنسى ما وراء الموت ماذا بعد تكفيني كأني قد ضمنت العيش ليس الموت يأتيني وجاءت سكرة الموت الشديدة من سيحميني نظرت إلى الوجوه أليس منهم من سيفديني سأسأل ما الذي قدمت في دنياي ينجيني فكيف إجابتي من بعد ما فرطت في ديني ويا ويحي ألم أسمع كلام الله يدعوني ألم أسمع لما قد جاء في قاف وياسيني ألم أسمع بيوم الحشر يوم الجمع والديني ألم أسمع منادي الموت يدعوني يناديني 
فيا رباه عبد تائب من ذا سيأويني سوى رب غفور واسع للحق يهديني أتيت إليك فارحمني وثقل في موازيني وخفف في جزائي أنت أرجى من يجازيني إذا ما قالني ربي أما استحييت تعصيني وتخفي الذنب عن خلقي وبالعصيان تأتيني فكيف أجيب يا ويحي ومن ذا سوف يحميني أسلي النفس بالآمال من حين إلى حين وأنسى ما وراء الموت ماذا بعد تكفيني كأني قد ضمنت العيش ليس الموت يأتيني وجاءت سكرة الموت الشديدة من سيحميني نظرت إلى الوجوه أليس منهم من سيفديني سأسأل ما الذي قدمت في دنياي ينجيني فكيف إجابتي من بعد ما فرطت في ديني ويا ويحي ألم أسمع كلام الله يدعوني ألم أسمع لما قد جاء في قاف وياسيني ألم أسمع بيوم الحشر يوم الجمع والدين ألم أسمع منادي الموت يدعوني يناديني فيا رباه عبد تائب من ذا سيأويني سوى رب غفور واسع للحق يهديني أتيت إليك فارحمني وثقل في موازيني وخفف في جزائي أنت أرجى من يجازيني إذا ما قالني ربي أما استحييت تعصيني وتخفي الذنب عن خلقي وبالعصيان تأتيني فكيف أجيب يا ويحي ومن ذا سوف يحميني أسلي النفس بالآمال من حين إلى حين وأنسى ما وراء الموت ماذا بعد تكفيني كأني قد ضمنت العيش ليس الموت يأتيني وجاءت سكرة الموت الشديدة من سيحميني نظرت إلى الوجوه أليس منهم من سيفديني 
سأسأل من الذي قدمت في دنياي ينجيني فكيف إجابتي من بعد ما فرطت في ديني ويا ويحي ألم أسمع كلام الله يدعوني ألم أسمع لما قد جاء في قاف وياسيني ألم أسمع بيوم الحشر يوم الجمع والديني ألم أسمع منادي الموت يدعوني يناديني فيا رباه عبد تائب من ذا سيأويني سوى رب غفور واسع للحق يهديني أتيت إليك فارحمني وثقل في موازيني وخفف في جزائي أنت أرجى من يجازيني إذا ما قالني ربي أما استحييت تعصيني وتخفي الذنب عن خلقي وبالعصيان تأتيني فكيف أجيب يا ويحي ومن ذا سوف يحميني أسلي النفس بالآمال من حين إلى حيني وأنسى ما وراء الموت ماذا بعد تكفيني كأني قد ضمنت العيش ليس الموت يأتيني وجاءت سكرة الموت الشديدة من سيحميني نظرت إلى الوجوه أليس منهم من سيفديني سأسأل من الذي قدمت في دنياي ينجيني فكيف إجابتي من بعد ما فرطت
curious I should be actually. Uh, probably after Asa, maybe.